We all make our choices. And those choices, they put us on a road. Sometimes those choices seem small, but they put you on the road. You think about getting off, but eventually you're back on it. And the road we're on led us out to the desert and everything that happened there and straight back to where we are right now. And nothing, nothing can be done about that. Do you understand that? I can't believe there's like over a billion people on this planet. And the only person I have to talk about this to is you. And I can't wait until the day when I will finally hear you say that I'm blessed. You're Hey, everybody, and thanks for listening to the second episode of FYIZ. I'm your host, John Walker. Uh, this is both the second episode of FYIZ and the final episode of a long-running podcast of mine, which was called Saul Searching. It was a podcast where we recapped nearly every episode of Better Call Saul. And when that show ended its run in August of 2022, I had it in mind that I did want to do a final show that would look back at the whole series and take in all the character arcs and themes and kind of point out some some great moments. And I found myself a pretty good guest for that, my friend, filmmaker and musician, Chance Shirley. I thought it would be fun to sit back with Chance and have a nice, relaxed, long conversation. This is, this is maybe the longest podcast I've ever released, but it was my attempt to kind of get it all out. So here it is, without any further introduction. This is The Search Is Over, the final Saul Searching podcast with Chance Shirley. <laughs> Welcome to my world. You know, listening to you, to this podcast, I am I really love Better Call Saul, and I feel like I might have bitten off more than I can chew because when I hear you guys talk about it, I'm always like, oh my gosh, John knows this show. Like you were talking about timelines on one episode, and I'm like, I've never even considered this. Well, I felt I felt funny doing that. I just wanted to do it once. I just wanted to one time try to lay it out. Right. And if you watch the show in kind of a binge, you you really see how much it's like, oh, that this is the next day. Like this episode is picking up minutes after the last episode ended, and you don't always think about that when you're watching because sometimes it feels like a month passes in an episode and sometimes it does but a lot of times that's just them saying no jimmy got a lot done this week yeah there's also like all these little motifs on the show that are worth mentioning that you almost want to call out a particular moment of them but it's like no there isn't one moment it's more of a theme so i'm just going to throw out a few of those and get your feelings on those and you need to get out of my out of my brain because my um and i'll go ahead and spoil this for you the way that there's so many great moments on the show what I did was I took some of my favorite, um, some of my favorite motifs that repeat to the show, and picked my favorite of those as my my, my top five moments, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah. So and, and 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 so I think we're kind of I think we're kind of thinking along the same lines. That's fun. I'm excited that we're kind of on the same page accidentally. <laughs> There's so much to cover here that we're kind of doing this survey that like each one of my little 
clusters of notes, I was like, well, this could be a whole conversation if I'm not careful. <laughs> you know, what would be a really meta thing is you could have a, a Saul searching spinoff that is, I don't know what you would call it, Saul Minutia or something. <laughs> you could have a different episode about all of these things that you've discovered you could have a whole episode about. Waiting just for you. Welcome to my You're recording on both your devices. Well, you're going through Zoom and you're recording on your Tascam? Yeah, and, I've, and yeah, I'm already like 20 minutes into my Tascam, so uh, <laughs> we're good. Uh, so I'm marking the time and uh, I'm going to say thank you, Chance, for coming on this final, uh, you know, looking back at the whole show episode of uh, my uh, Better Call Saul recap podcast, Saul Searching. I'm, I, I, thank you, John. I'm, I, I've been a fan of, of, of obviously both the show and your podcast for forever. And um, I felt kind of um, nerdy saying, hey, is it too late for me to get on this awesome podcast about the show that I love? And um, I'm glad that there was a uh, there was kind of a, a wrap up wrap up episode that I could I could take part of. I'm really excited about it. Well, it's funny. You were on my list of I mean, we've we've actually recorded a podcast before for a show that I'm banking episodes for that at some point I will begin to release them in a flurry. But right now I've just I'm still filling in holes in my in my uh, Amazing Stories uh, recap podcast. But you did an episode of that uh, show, but that that was, I think, the last time we spoke. You know, I mean, we've had internet interactions. And we, we're like <laughs> yeah. boosters of each other's projects whenever they come up online, but we don't really talk. So it's funny, the last time we talked about an episode of Amazing Stories that people out there will get to hear that eventually. That's part of my uh, podcast, Are They Though? The Amazing Stories podcast. Um, but yeah, so I knew you watched Better Call Saul. I knew you as someone who listened to the Saul Searching podcast, at least whenever, like I would sometimes ha remind you, oh, it's like, oh, Chance, I remember he liked the podcast. I'll let him know we're doing it again. And you would always, I don't know, I always got a charge out of knowing that, that you know, you and there's other people out there that were sort of enthusiastic fans, not just of Better Call Saul, but of, of this show. So it seemed like a natural to have you come on and help wrap it up. One thing I, I wanted to mention was that, that, it seemed like while we were watching Better Call Saul in real time, you know, anxiously awaiting new episodes, um, it like took really forever. And <laughs> and when I started, um, I was like, well, you know, since since John asked me on the podcast, I'm going to I'm not going to have time to watch them all, but I'll I'll just start putting it on while I'm, I'm working on some other stuff and, 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 and kind of give myself a refresher. And I was surprised at how much I covered in a very short period when you sit down and kind of binge it on Netflix now it really moves, you know, yes. and, and all these, all these, all these seasons that I thought had taken forever to, to, to get through, it was actually just like the release schedule of the show. You know, the actual show is, 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 and, and not surprisingly, it's ridiculously tight, you know, and when you watch them all, you know, when you watch two or three episodes in a row, you see how fast it moves and how much of, I, did you feel that way when we were watching it, that in real time, that it took forever to, to get from one point to the other? And then um, when you go back, did it seem like, did, did you see that it moved differently, you know, in that sense? I I started rewatching the show from the beginning very recently with my son and, and 
um, the show was, I think, not quite over when we started rewatching it. I think his goal was to watch it all so that he could watch the finale in time. And it didn't work out that way, but we were watching it. So we were very close to the end of our rewatch when the, when we got to, we were maybe back in season five or something when the show actually ended. And so then we started watching it. So I just recently finished the final season, watching it week to week. And then shortly after that, a few weeks after that, finished watching the whole show and watched that last season again. And I would say that my feelings mapped onto what you just said exactly, that like the week to week torture of just loving this world and this story so much and wanting to see like what the next part of it was. Um, and then sometimes waiting a year or more between seasons, like right. that, that really sort of obscured the fact that if you kind of binge through it, a lot of these storylines are taking place over a shorter span of time or like the thing that I really noticed was going from season five into season six, that scene at the end of season five, uh, where Kim sort of hatches the plan to ruin Howard or to, you know, to sort of the, 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 the plan of attack on what they're going to do to Howard, they start to form it. Yeah. And it's almost like a thought experiment one night when they're hiding out in a hotel after, after Lalo scares them off from their apartment. So they have that, right. that har- harrowing scene in their apartment with Lalo. And then they end up in a hotel a luxury hotel and Jimmy's thinking about leaving Kim and you can tell that Kim almost has to coax Jimmy back into a relationship because Jimmy's worried that this has gotten too hot and that Kim is should should leave him and he's kind of ready to break up and like come on what are we doing here and then she sort of lures him back in with this you know we could do this thing we could and then we could use the money for good I could I could do my pro bono stuff because we would have all this money from the Sandpiper settlement um that episode ends and they have had like a, a cart in their in their uh, hotel room, like a, like an ice cream cart that they ordered from room service with like toppings and and they're, you know they're making sundays in the in the hotel right. room. The next episode or episode six oh one, so it's almost two years later when we got season six, <laughs> right? Th- there's a shot of like them getting up in the hotel and you see the the room service cart outside their hotel room. That's the the ice cream cart from the last episode. So it's like, oh, wow. The first time through in season six, I wasn't thinking about the fact that this was literally the next morning from right. the end of season five. So in that episode, when Jimmy's like, oh, we're still doing that thing about Howard, <laughs> you feel like, because you've been waiting two years for this, you feel like at least a <laughs> month or something has passed for them and they're still talking right. about it. But it's literally yeah. like you had a weird conversation with your significant other one night and then the next day they're still talking about that thing and you're like, oh, we're, we're still on this. You know, it's, 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 it just made it so much more of what you just said, that timeline, it's, it's a headlong rush. And also the themes that they're playing with they are really sticking to those themes to the point where, um, you know, I always said about Breaking Bad that one of the things that made it good was that it, when it ended, it felt like they were ending this, the story that they started. And I think if you watch all of Better Call Saul, you definitely see, oh yeah, they start with the very questions of character and who is this guy of Jimmy that the end of this show is designed to answer. So if you go back and watch it, it all feels very connected. And like you said, like a very tightly constructed story, um, even though it felt like, when is he going to become Saul? I mean, I think that was what we were all thinking when the show started was like, how quickly is he going to be the character we know from Breaking Bad? Because everyone pictured the show, I think, being like a fun show about him. Doing wacky schemes. You know, legal shenanigans. <laughs> yeah. Like a case yeah. of the week almost kind of show, which could have been great. But I think the writers instantly realized, oh, wait, if we stick to the tone of Breaking Bad, that's a little more serious. There's this whole other character exploration they could do. So, um, but no, I think I, I 100% agree that watching the show, it felt like this is taken forever. And then watching it again, I was like, they really only spent half a season on this storyline that I thought took a lot longer, you know? 
Yeah, yeah. And there's a lot of discourse, it seems like these days about, um, you know, the binging, you know, age and whether or not it's, you know, whether or not when Netflix drops a new show, is it really, is it, is it really fair to the viewer and to the show to sit down and stay up all night and watch, you know, 10 hours of TV, you know, at one time, as opposed to the way we did it back in the old days when you would have to wait week to week to see new shows. And, um, and I think there are arguments on either side of that, but I, I, I really, and, and obviously with, with Better Call Saul, you know, some of the, 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 I had not, was it really two years between season five and season six after it was all said and done? Like in 2020, we got season five and in 2022, we got season six. And I think there would have been some overlap. Like, I think that around the time that season five was, was ending in 2020 is about the time it was starting in 2022. So it may have been like a little bit less than two years or a little bit more, but it was it was right on that line of around two years. It was a significant break. Yeah, longer than you would normally get. Yeah. But I mean, I think they had already taken a year plus break between seasons at some point because of different things that had to be scheduled or like negotiated with, with uh, uh, AMC. So I think there were times where it was more than a year between seasons, but this was the longest gap that that we had had and it was just enough time for it to suddenly feel like oh my gosh it's so momentous that this great show is coming back especially after news of bob odenkirk's heart attack and everybody kind of rallying around him and you kind of having yeah. that slightly heartwarming thing of realizing oh this is one of those moments where it seems like everybody in the world of entertainment loves bob odenkirk and all this you know i think even he was surprised at the outpouring of <laughs> affection he got well and it's it, it it's it's fun how you know, he started off as, um, well, you know, of course, I always think about, you know, Mr. Show, which is, which was a real, I mean, it, it's a great sketch show, but it's also, it's also pretty snide and cynical as far as that sort of thing goes, you know, and for him to go from kind of an outside comedian to this beloved, um, statesman-like, com uh, uh, you know, dramatic actor, it's a, it's it's a it's a it's like a like a real life arc, you know. And I'm not saying that 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 Bob Odenkirk was not always like a genuine, you know, good dude. But his his persona back in the Mr. Show days was a little more acerbic, I think, you know. And, right. and as he's gotten older and 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 gotten to do more dramatic work, I think that 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 our perception of it has, has changed, um, you know, in, in 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 a positive way, whether or not that's fair or not. I think it's fair enough, and I think it's also. I mean, from the outside, I'm sure as a person, he's, I think that when you hear stories about people collaborating with Bob Odenkirk, the, they always quote him as like, God damn it. You know, like, I think, I think that he's like an irascible sort of guy in some ways, but I think he's just really opinionated about, in this case, comedy, like the people right. that worked under him, a lot of the people that were writers or performers on Mr. Show turned out to be people that today are still doing great comedy. And that whenever they talk about him, there's this kind of you know, he's like a Lorne Michaels type figure to them in the sense of there's yeah. there's not a love hate. There doesn't seem like there's any animosity, but the tough mindedness of this person who shaped something and had a mind about what they were shaping is like, you know, you can look at someone's career in the long view and sort of respect that they managed to hold on to something. But what you just said about Mr. Show, um, it was like it was like a watershed moment for a certain kind of acerbic comedy that a lot of people still, I mean, I'm, I'm sure people would watch it now just like any sketch comedy from the past and say, well, this hasn't aged as well, or this doesn't feel as funny as it did when I first saw it. Um, but there's also moments that are just transcendent, you know? The, mm -hmm. and, and I think that like knowing what you're doing and having an opinion about that and shaping it and like, yeah, like you have to be a little bit 
tough maybe i think especially sketch comedy is like a really weird game um and you have to have a certain sharpness to you that i bet that we all naturally mellow out of that sharpness just a little bit um, i even heard bob odenkirk recently in answer to the question about well, is there going to be another season because they did a kind of a sort of a reboot called uh, with bob yeah. and david and he th yeah. he said that turns out the demand for sketch comedy made by old people is not that high <laughs> <laughs> but I do think that there's something about a young person's game of sketch comedy being like when you can play all these like there's something the kids in the hall just had a, a, a great season on Amazon that mm -hmm. was like about as good as you could hope from some guys who are 60 or pushing it. And <laughs> right. even they they won that battle, if you want to say they did creatively by leaning into it. So when, it, when one of them was showing up in a sketch with like a dark wig on and going, hey guys, and acting like a young person, that was sort of part of the joke. That's how they dealt with it. But I think Bob Odenkirk's point is true that when you're young, that you can, they can slap makeup on you to be old and you can be like, as mean-spirited about playing an old person, but when you're actually, I don't know, you've got some miles on you. It's hard to play a teenager at that point. You're more in the type that you, like, what do, what do you project? It's like, that's where someone like Eugene Levy, who started as a sketch com comic and then eased into, like, dorky dad roles, it's yeah. like he found his spot in the acting pantheon. And I'm not saying that's all he can do. I'm just saying that, like, if you're a sketch comedian, you kind of need to find your niche if you're going to stick, if you're going to stay funny and, and grow old in the business, it seems like. And that's one of the things um, that I'm sure we'll get into. Um, you know, it's, there's something that I always find rewarding about seeing um, gifted comedic actors get to do, like, real drama. And, you know, Better Call Saul was just kind of dripping with that. Yes. Um, you know, of course, you had Odenkirk. And then Michael McKeon, my goodness. I mean, mm -hmm. um, did I ever tell you about seeing Michael McKeon and the guys doing Spinal Tap Unplugged and Unwigged um, a few years back um, when they were doing a tour? I don't think you did. But, well, I'm sure you know that aside from being you know wonderful actors, those guys are also like brilliant musicians, like legitimately insanely good musicians. That's what made the joke so good was that they were actually <laughs> doing it. They weren't just poking fun at it, saying this is easy. They were like actually doing it. Yeah, it's it's like um, it's like um, yeah, I can you know you know write these um, ridiculous heavy heavy metal songs and also like play these these difficult heavy metal riffs on my guitar. You know, mm -hmm. um, I mean um, Harry Shearer playing stand up bass is because I've played some bass in my time, and anytime I see somebody play a stand up bass, I'm just like. I can't understand how that even works, you know, it's such a different instrument. Um, and then, you know, Carol Burnett showing up in the last season uh, for a few episodes. I, I spent my, I spent like the first five minutes after she showed up going, no way, no, I cannot believe they got, they got legendary Carol Burnett to like help them wrap this show up. And I'm like, is that her? And I had yeah. to look it up on IMDb to like triple check. And, and that just always, you know, that kind of stuff always makes me so happy. Well, that, that's got a little charming story attached to it too, because Vince Gilligan, you know, creator of Breaking Bad and co-creator of this show, um, it, it was known to him through circles in the business that Carol Burnett was a fan of Breaking Bad, I think. And she like, oh, gave, wow. so it was kind of like he got the wave over at some function, like Carol Burnett would like to talk to you. And then he became friends <laughs> with her. And he said there was always a question of, could we find something for her? And then- I had no idea. So they were actually buddies. Yeah, they, they were at least acquainted, you know, and it sounds yeah. like became friends. It's one of those things where it didn't sound show busy when he was talking about it. It sounds like he was yeah. like, she's a great lady and she was a fan. And then it was like, they they so often do this on this show, you find out some big decision was based on some either practical need or some uh, something that's not necessarily a, a genius creative move. It's like re reacting to a situation. And other times it's like, oh, we always had it in our minds that we should find something for her and, and ask her if we thought something was right. And when they came up with this character of Marion, apparently that was just sort of, it was like, 
oh, do you think we could? You know, like, would she do it? And she said that Better Call Saul was her favorite show. So it was an easy yes when they asked her to come and do it. And that she loves that she got to be the one to turn him in. She said that that was just such an honor. (laughs) And I think I think you see it on her face. I've mentioned it before on this podcast when she after she describes the car he's driving off into the cops in that final episode, she says, oh, please get him. And she just says it in this way that's like. So sort of what we're all thinking in a weird way at that moment of like, this guy, you know, we've as, even those of us that love him are thinking like, you can't, do you, someone has to stop Jimmy because he's just going to keep <laughs> digging a deeper hole for himself at this point. Um, and I do want to, like, we're, we're about to get into, if people don't know, this episode is called The Search is Over. Um, and it's uh, it's an attempt to maybe look at the themes and the favorite moments and characters character arcs from the show we've got like loosely constructed lists of our top moments i have a feeling that's going to be very unstructured as we get uh <laughs> as we get into this because we really just have a lot of things we want to say about looking at the long view of this show um and i wanted to say we're already talking about that final episode and one of the things i have on my outline here is like the context of a whole show when the story's finished and you can let it sit in your head and you look back on it there's something about this that there's always that bittersweet thing of this is over um and for me anyway, bittersweet thing. Oh my God, this is over. I'm so sad. But also I love endings. And I know as a storytelling nerd, you must too have a strong feeling one way or the other about when stories are designed to have an ending. And like, maybe they will do spinoffs and follow-ups, but right now they haven't announced anything. Like th- at this point, we are meant to believe that we just saw the final chapter, not of Better Call Saul, but of this whole grand albuquerque saga and the the you know the way that final episode <laughs> yeah. worked as both things it worked as like this is like the epilogue to the whole thing and it's the best little it's the best way maybe of you know making us all confront the truth about jimmy um that i just spoke which is that unless he's stopped by someone outside he's never going to stop trying to weasel his way out you know of whatever predicament that he's in yeah yeah um the and and you know endings of um of television shows, um, they they seem to be difficult. Especially, um, you know, it's I think it's maybe a little easier for 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 creatives these days because it seems like that that nowadays a, a show will basically get a deal with a network and they'll be like, okay, you're going to do six seasons of this, or you know, and and then wrap it up. Yeah. But you know, in in the days you know when we grew up watching shows that were just cranking out 22 shows a year. They didn't really necessarily know from one year to the to the next, you know how you know when the show was actually going to end, you know. So you end up with something like Star Trek, you know, that ran three seasons and just had like a weird, strange episode, you know, as the finale with no real wrap up. Yeah. As opposed to Star Trek: The Next Generation, which I think I don't know if you're a Next Gen fan, but but that had kind of a famously like like a really a really good solid, thoughtful final episode, you know, that I think a lot of people like. An ending, something that the writers got to work towards and probably had thoughts about of like, what's the way we want to end this? Yeah. And, um, and, and when I first saw the, the, the Saul wrap up, I was really torn on it because like you said, I think a lot of us, as much as, as we understand that Jimmy is not entirely ethical, we still, we still, he's still very likable. And, you know, you hate to see anybody that you like, you know, go to jail for a long time. Right. But the more that I, th- it was one of those finales that the more that I thought on it, the more that I really like it, 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 it sat with me really well, you know, and, mm-hmm. and, and a few days later, I'm like, yeah, they nailed it. I mean, and which isn't surprising because it's just, it's just such a, an immaculate show in general. It, it's hard to find fault with with any you know particular episode. Um, but but I and I really I really like that that Jimmy had the realization after it was all said and done that 
that his feelings for Kim were the thing that he would basically throw, that he would basically settle down, settle down being, you know, uh, going to jail. Yeah, you right. Know? But, it, but, but I also really love that. Settle down with we the consequences gl- of what he had done, honestly. Settle down with the consequences of what he had done, yeah. But I really love, too, that, that even we get a glimpse of him in jail and we see that he's going to be okay because it seems to me that he's already kind of taken over the jail. You know, he's, he's got fans and he had fans on the bus, right? right. He at least has friends to, that would stop him from being an easy target for anybody in prison, you know? But, and, and maybe I was reading too much into it, but it seemed to me that like everybody in jail loved him as much as we do. Well, I mean, I think there's two <laughs> things to that. You don't even have to picture like a cheesy thing where he starts like a law class or something, but you can right. totally picture him. Imagine how much advice he can give to guys in there who are about to go up for their parole hearing or who are talking to their lawyer and saying, he thinks he can get me this if I just admit to that. Think of all the advice that Jimmy would have. Think of how many people are like, like he'd be like Ferris, you know, you need to talk to Ferris Bueller kind of thing. Like he'd be that guy. And even though we know that he's not necessarily wanting to be that guy, I think it's it's interesting that the in court, he says to the judge, it's Jimmy McGill. You know, he corrects her on his name. Like after all this time right. of wanting people to call him Saul. And then right. he's on the bus to prison and it's Saul Goodman. And he doesn't, he doesn't, he doesn't tell those guys not to call him Saul. So it seems interesting that maybe Saul really is something he just realizes. It's like, I, th- I keep thinking about it in regards to that moment where like, because I've heard people talk about why he calls Oakley. And I think there's a lot of storytelling reasons why you bring a character like Oakley back into the show because right, he's been there right. since the beginning and it's fun to see him have more to do. And that actor is exactly. a great, has a great mug, you know, for like mm-hmm. reading, you can read his face and see what we're supposed to think <laughs> sometimes of, of Jimmy, yeah. even though he's a bit of a meat grinder type guy. And I think about that moment where it's like, Oh yeah, they sort of spell it out for you. He's he's breaking down in that cell, and then he sees where someone has like spitball toilet paper written on the wall, whatever. My lawyer will ream your ass, and he sees that, and that's when he starts his like laugh cry. I love actors get a chance to do that maybe once in their career where they break down and laugh cry. You know where they're like right, right. mind broken. La- I always think of Sam Neil at the end of In the Mouth of Madness, where it's like it's a great like I'm laughing and I'm crying and it's all crazy, but like he can't handle it. But I think what he's realizing in that moment is, oh my God, I'm the guy who helps people like me. Like Saul Goodman is who needs, I need Saul Goodman right now. And I think the reason he instantly says, I need another call. And then we cut to Oakley getting the call. I think we're meant Mm -hmm. to see his connection is like, I need like a lawyer to be my lawyer that I can totally steamroll. So that, so that Saul Goodman can come to my rescue because he needs a lawyer who will ream their ass. And if you really look at the way he's acting in that scene with Marie where he's that, that sob story that's making you cringe for, for all the times Jimmy has made you buy it with his little scams and root for him, you don't want to see him call himself a victim in front of Marie. You know, you just don't want to see him do right. that. And right. to dis- but it's like it's, it's 100% perfect Saul uh, – a perfect performance of Saul Goodman to be that loathsome. And then when the guy says, you really think a jury's going to buy that? And he said, I only need one. It's that whole thing of <laughs> saying the saying the, the part you should keep quiet, uh, you know, out loud. It's like, it's like he doesn't, he's a negotiator. And we've always seen him in those rooms. It's like, he'll say, all I need is one guy to say you're wrong. Or, oh, hey, aren't you the prosecutor who's never lost a case? I sure would suck if something messed that up for you. It's like, oh, that's, oh, it's 10 so good. people it's so are good. hearing him yeah. say this, you know? But anyway, yeah. I, th- I think back to my original point on that is like, I think that idea of like, Jimmy being able to use the Saul persona or the advantages of the Saul persona. We see the sleazy version of it throughout this episode. At the end, we're sort of left with this notion of, Okay, these guys on the bus, he's almost like a folk hero to them. And it follows the scene where Chuck 
almost, I mean, it's almost in a sweet way that Chuck is reminding Jimmy that, yeah, these dirt bags that you don't want as clients, they need someone, they need a defense, just like the law needs to seek, you know, a kind of retribution for what they've done. It's like, I think yeah. that Chuck is actually trying to be sincere with Jimmy in that moment. And it's interesting that the show draws a line between, we've always pictured what Kim is doing is noble, you know, that she wants to help people that really need it and she wants to do it for free. I, I'm not saying what Jimmy does is noble. I'm just saying there is still something poignant about being the lawyer for the guy who was caught for public urination. <laughs> you know, they're like <laughs> not caring who walks through your door, you know, and not 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 being too like he'll do anything for his clients on this weird philosophical level. So I love that the show pays off that idea by saying, so maybe prison won't be so bad for this guy. You know, like in the end, if all of that just means he's got a fan club in prison, I think that's a very like I think I said it before, but like it's a nice way to say prison's not fun and they're not trying to make prison seem fun, but they are saying if you were worried about it being a hellish nightmare for Jimmy, uh, then it doesn't seem like it's going to be. He's going to do better than, in there than most people would. Yeah. Let's put it that way. Right. He's the cockroach, as Lalo said. <laughs> you know? But also, what do we think of this new integrated Jimmy at the end? I mean, I really do. The more I've thought about it, I think that like it's an important thing to say, here's a character who 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 lives long enough in this world to to learn lessons and i heard where um the vince gilligan said he doesn't think they ever really seriously considered like saul dying at the end of the show was never one of the outcomes that they talked about in the writers room and he also sort of he also sort of admitted that um even though they were coy about it with the press that because so many people seized on you better not kill kim wexler like early in the run of this show they said they had to <laughs> be coy about that even though they never intended they that they never saw that as the thing either, you know, which leads me into one of my observations I wanted to get into you about this, this last episode. It's like, I always thought it was a love story between Jimmy and Kim, or at least that was the thing I cared most about on this show. And I saw, it was kind of funny to see people reacting to the finale. Uh, Some people seem surprised that it went out as like a noirish romance. And I'll talk about one of those motifs. But it started as a noirish romance. Do you remember the- Right. Yeah. (laughs) I just mean the whole show seems like it was always important to me that we take their relationship seriously and not view her as just some kind of collateral damage waiting to happen in his life. And I think the show ended to say, yes, it was, it's kind of a two-hander, you know, in a strange way that her fate is mirrored against Jimmy's fate. And that's kind of how you balance that ending, you know, that we feel hopeful for these characters because they're connected to each other again, even though one of them might have a civil case that crushes her life. We still don't know what's up with that. And also Jimmy's in prison for as far as we know. I mean, I feel like what he did might, might ameliorate any criminal charges against her, but I don't think he can control what what happens with that affidavit, her sworn affidavit, you know, he can't erase that from the record. So it's like, it's a, it's weird that we feel hopeful for these characters when their lives are essentially ruined by what we just saw. But the fact that they have each other makes us not feel, you know, we're not just gnashing our teeth at the end of that story because they have the, they're back in each other's lives in some obscure way. Yeah. Yeah. The, um, it was considering all of the, all of the, the drama and sadness, um, you know, that, uh, that, that happened there at the end, their, their um, reconciliation, I guess, and I don't even know if that's the right word, but, 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 but the fact that they left each other on good terms gives you a, 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 a happier feeling than, than, than like I said, I'd come, 
It gave me such a, a good feeling that I completely forgot that she was on the hook for a civil lawsuit, which could be really, really terrible. Right. I mean, the last we heard about it was that uh, Howard's widow is, is definitely lawyer shopping is what Oakley said. Right. Right. But we don't know what, like, I also think that it could be implied that somewhere between seven years and 86 years that as Jimmy added to his sentence, he could have done right. some of that negotiation at the table of saying, look, I'm not going to look, I'm not going to, I'm not going to make this deal if you don't squash this thing. I just don't think there's any way for those people to squash a civil suit from someone outside of this, you know? So it's no, down no, no. to, it's down to what Howard's widow wants. And I do believe there's a way that she would drop the case because it's just too much ugliness in her life and she doesn't want to deal with it. But if she's out there lawyer shopping, we still have to keep in mind, you know, this, th that's another thing to show the, the timeline of that last episode. He's extradited to New Mexico pretty quickly. That plane ride is pretty soon after he got arrested. Um, mm -hmm. That court appearance might be, I mean, who knows how long it takes, but it's probably pretty soon after all of that too, because it's all set up for him to just basically, it's just to make that deal official. So this is all stuff right. that's happening over a matter of days. So for Kim to, you know, both go and file the affidavit, talk to the widow, know that she could be bringing the world down on herself, um, uh, go back home, have this moment where she goes to the legal aid center and volunteers her time, and then gets a call from Suzanne, the, you know, the, the DA saying, I just want you to know that Jimmy McGill's back in town and he's talking about you, you know, <laughs> like, and she shows up. It's like that. I don't know what the timeline for that is, but it's not a long time. It's like for these characters, this is all happening pretty quickly. This is all pretty fresh. So who knows yeah. what's happening with uh, the lawyer shopping of the, of the widow Hamlin. We, we really don't know, uh, like where her head's at, but I don't know why she would have changed her feeling about Kim for any tangible reason. You know, you, you got to think about the hatred she would feel for them. So often we love these characters, but it's so like Marie being there was the perfect way to, to, to show us like, yeah, even if we don't like Marie as much as we like Jimmy, we have to see how in the terms of the world. And I like how she said, you know, my husband was a good guy, like the, he and Gomi were the good guys. Um, right. You know, whether we think the DEA are the good guys in real life, we know that in terms of the story, <laughs> Hank was trying to stop the, the, you know, the bad guys, at least in his own mind. So I do think that that's an interesting position the show puts us in. Of sort of root, like you said, you're kind of rooting for some kind of outcome up till the end of this episode. You're like, well, there's some outcome that I don't see that Jimmy is going to weasel out again. And then a few days afterwards, you realize, oh, wait, that would actually bum me out if he weaseled out again. And that was the note I was left with as compared to he, you know, maybe it's because of my age. I think accepting your consequences and and accepting you can change, you know, and, and growth is a, is, is a good thing. I think that's a, a, a meaningful message, especially with all these shows on the air about awful people that we're supposed to delight in their awfulness, you know, and I'm not, I'm not a moralist at all when it comes to the stories that I, that I watch, but sometimes you do think about, well, what is the message? If Jimmy McGill gets away at the end, then what was all of this? Like, honestly, like great drama that they've been giving us in these last years. It's almost like they had to pay it off in a, you know, they had to give us something bittersweet or heavy or it wouldn't have felt right, you know? Uh, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, and, and, and that's and that's where, like I said, I think there was the. When I was when I like right when I watched the finale at first, I was like, I don't know how I feel about this. And the more I thought about it and the more I, it sat with me, the more it felt right, because. I think because of all the the things you say, I think there is the there's the the personal or the the payoff with the relationship with Kim, which we were obviously all you know heavily invested in, um, and 
the the fact that 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 was the one thing that that Jimmy would would basically not would basically trade for for his freedom you know yeah. was was really what he, I mean he had, he had basically completely weaseled out of this and he's like you know what I, I'm not going to do it that way I'm going to I'm going to do what I think is going to be better for Kim and then um there's the moral reconciliation that kind of goes along with that that yeah it just feels right you know and and it and it and it it's just it's a really thoughtful ending from a show that was full of thoughtful <laughs> thoughtful thought, thoughtful you know plot points like that and it does allow you to play with the scenario in your head going forward the way that a lot of great stories do like i saw where the uh, ray seahorn who plays kim was asked about what do you think and she said well i'm a romantic she said i think uh, that kim visits him every chance she gets and that eventually they figure out some some way that his time gets cut short. There's some deal or some, you know, some finagling to get him into a better situation. And I also heard where Peter Gould, the the writer and director of this episode, who said, yeah, I don't somehow think Jimmy spins. I, I don't think he ends up serving the rest of his life in prison. He was like, I don't know what happens. But, and they've always been very generous in the way they talk about story points where they want to leave if the show leaves mystery they like to leave mystery and he but his right. he was saying in his gut if he were continuing the story he doesn't picture jimmy dying in prison you know that he thinks something happens but and and the fact that that ray seahorn who's like the the you know kim's advocate <laughs> is saying oh no right. she's in love with him and she's going to do anything she can for him even if there's nothing they can have right now you know so there is that bittersweetness yeah. but it's what you just said i think everybody it's kind of clinging to that idea of hopefulness. And I think that idea that it's kind of a love story, it feels good to have a sort of, I always thought they had a very mature relationship and maybe not, I'm not saying necessarily that I relate to every aspect of it because that would be perhaps legally uh, uh, dicey. <laughs> Problematic. <laughs> but I just think like the way I see myself, you know, the way, I don't know, that kind of bond between two people who people might want, like my wife is a scientist who works for the government you know, people that meet her don't expect that her husband is some weird gadfly uh, freelance creative weirdo who, you know, sti stitches a life. To, like she went to school and got a degree and got a job in that thing and went back and got another degree like a lot of people with careers do. And I like went to school for one thing and got a job in another thing. And then, you know what I mean? Like it's yeah. And I, I, I don't. So in that sense, I kind of see that like the drivenness of Kim and the sort of the sort of uh, sketchiness of Jimmy, I think like the way they work together, I've always thought this is a very well observed relationship. Even if you don't have those real life things that I just mentioned to make you relate in a kind of fun way, like just the way that they, they don't constantly say I love you to each other, but you feel the affection there. They have these moments of real passion. And then they have a lot of moments where they're just dealing with a life issue together. And they're sort of there in each other's corners in this way, this sort of automatic way that to me mm -hmm. always felt very, just like, oh, this is a very measured adult relationship that we're seeing. Like two people who have every reason to be cagey about who they let into their life and they are comfortable with each other. And therefore you can see that whatever he means to Kim is, I mean, similarly to the fact that her leaving his life is what, you know, we people wondered, what's it going to be? What's it going to be that makes him decide to dive into this Saul persona? And it's Kim leaving his life. I mean, it's obvious uh, she doesn't have to die to do it, you know. Um, but what what does that mean for Kim? Like we see that she sort of like the colors drained out of her life, too, when we see her and she's not being herself. And she's not even making a decision about what kind of ice cream they should have at the at the you know work birthday party. You know, when they when they when they cut to her in Florida and she doesn't well, she's not a blonde anymore, but but more importantly, she doesn't have the ponytail anymore. Yeah. I mean, it just sucked the energy. I mean, I it, it, I was I was, 
you know, that really hit me like a like like so hard. Well, and like I was saying, you know, she her wardrobe is just kind of. Uh, you know, sort of a little bit more suburban, and 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 Nikki was like, no, 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 that those outfits are awful. Those denim skirts with those like Reeboks or whatever she's wearing. It's like it's just different from the sort of sleek, you know, professional on a budget sort of image that Kim perf- like she put off before. I'm like, wow, what has happened to this poor woman? You know, she's not Kim anymore. <laughs> I've always sort of thought of this show as like a, um, you know, it's like a classic noir, like a mid-century crime drama kind of thing. Like it fits into this sort of hard-boiled mm-hmm. story of people who are doing things and it's going to catch up with them and the lawyer's crooked and the, you know, the the cops are on the take or whatever. Like there's, and the people you're with are these sort of hard-nosed people, you know. And I love the way it's updated and I love the way that Better Call Saul is less that even than Breaking Bad in some ways. But with all the flashbacks they've done and all the fact that it's a it's a prequel to a thing and they've flashed into, and they've, they've caught up with the thing they're a prequel to and they've shown you a little bit past that i was like it also reminds me of almost like a a a, like a sci-fi story or something like but the way that you'll get a flashback and then it will color what you know about the past and the future and the present of these characters and it's always so deftly done when they do one of those flashbacks and it won't even seem like an eventful moment until you get a little distance from it and you think like why did we see that moment from Kim's childhood? Or why did we see that moment between mm-hmm. Jimmy and Chuck? And it starts to just mm-hmm. really build. And the show can do that in a way that like a show like, I don't know if you ever watched the show Lost, but Lost could do this thing. We're yeah, getting, I really get, love Lost. But like, it was that cool thing of the dual sort of storylines of like, how's, how mm-hmm. did this person handle a similar situation in their past? Now that's the same thing that you told me. Seems like just the other day. Gee, ain't it funny how time slips away. And I didn't recognize it until going into the finale. I had this thought of like, this show can do almost anything, but they can't do time travel and they can't do other universes, you know? Right. And then when they started off that last episode with a conversation about if you built a time machine, where would you go? <laughs> and that became a theme. I was like, oh, wait a minute. Maybe in a weird way, they know they've been playing with genre almost to this extent that yes, even though this is a grounded drama and a crime show, we can still take you back and forth through time and exhilarate you with the notion of, wait, where am I watching? You know, like sometimes they'll cut to a scene and you'll wonder, is this a flashback? Especially the cold opens of the show where you just have to parse what it means and what it's telling you. And I think like, okay, they must have the same thing on their mind, which is, oh, the only thing we really can't do for these characters is go back and fix the things that can't be fixed. so I don't know. I just wanted to maybe throw it th- that at you. I know as a, as a person who is into a lot of genre stuff, do, do you kind of yeah, know that yeah. weird feeling I'm talking about? That this show was always a crime drama and a love story, but it had this other element of where are they going to take me, you know? Yeah, and I had not thought about the way that the the time machine motif in the, in the last episode t- turned into a commentary on the structure of the show. Because, you know, when we all first started watching the first episode, you know, we all, I assume, like like Breaking Bad and didn't know exactly where it was going. And it starts off in black and white and you're like, what's happening? And then it goes to color and you're like, okay, wait a minute. And you start to piece together. So there was a, 
there, this is a prequel, but there's also a flash forward element to it. And yep. of course, the show over the years jumped back and forth, you know, to, to those to those places. Thankfully, a lot of times with the with the black and white motif to let you know, you know, this. I guess everything black and white was post Breaking Bad. Am I remembering that right? Yes. And it's like they rather than sh than cut to the past and put it in black and white, you, you cut to the future and cut it and put it in black. Because and white. most yeah. of the show was obviously set in the past, and therefore it was mostly in color. But yeah. but 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 yeah, I hadn't thought about that. But that's a that's a nice little the time machine thing was a nice little meta commentary on the if not the if not the genre of the show then on the on the structure of the show. You know the, how they were always playing with time and and like you were saying, even to the point where sometimes you you think, oh, that must have taken months, and you realize, oh, wait a minute, no, that all happened over the course of two days. You know, yeah. um, it, right, it, right. it's it's yeah, uh, which is which kind of. Well, and that gets into like, you know, the way we think about memory and, and, and the way that, that time plays, you know, when you look back like that, time plays tricks on you. So, so yeah, yeah, that's a, that, that's a fun point. Um, and of course, um, uh, uh, Gilligan, uh, he got started on the X-Files, right? Yeah. Yeah. So, so he obviously <laughs> has some feelings about that, I'm sure. Which is not, not just the ultimate genre show, but also a show that sort of ate eight other genres and spit them out for an episode or, or two, you know? So like, yeah, yeah. He yeah. really got to play around. That's, that's absolutely true. And, 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 and again, when you're looking at the, the, the modern, you know, so much of modern television is kind of this, you can call it like the HBO thing or like the, the BBC thing where, where instead of doing, you know, 22, 24 season, 24 episodes per year, you're only doing eight or 10 episodes. And it's a lot more, um, it's also, well, the, the, you know, you could sit down and enjoy an episode of Better Call Saul just randomly, but not as easily as you could an episode of The X-Files. Right. Because so much of, so much of Better Call Saul is, 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 is soap opera, for lack of a better word. No, no, it's a continuing story. And it's often an incremental step, too. It's often not exactly. a huge event that matters exactly. if you know the story, but if you don't know it, someone would have to explain to you why. Oh, no, him going to that copy shop and copying that stuff that has the wrong address on it. That's huge, you know, but like, yeah, that yeah, feels like yeah. a real step down from like, uh, you know, what people remember from Breaking Bad, you know, as far as the tension of it. Yeah, I, I and, and honestly, I, as much as I like, um, you know, good shows um, that are basically, you know, uh, you know, each season is a 10 hour movie, you know, if you want to look at it that way. Um, I kind of miss, um, I still watch a lot of the, the original, uh, one of my go-to like comfort food shows is the original Star Trek show from the sixties. And, um, and it's really fun to just put on a random episode and like, oh, I haven't seen this one in a while, you know, and, yeah. and, 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 and everything is, you know, it's, it's the, it's the old status quo style show where, you know, the show starts and the show ends and, you know, maybe Spock was dead for a minute in the middle of the show, but by the end of the show, he's okay again, you know, right. um, that, that's, there, there's a, there's a, there's a there's a pleasure in just being able to um, to take a bite like that and it being really satisfied and and again there are so many great individual episodes of of, of Better Call Saul but they they really don't um, you really don't without the full context they're just not quite complete if that makes well sense. they gain their some of their greatness from the overall story that's why in you know as we get into our kind of picks of of moments from the show that we love. That's why sometimes I'd be like, it's not true that season two is light on great drama or great acting or great scenes. It's just that as far as iconic turn 
turns in the in the plot line, that was a season where I didn't have a lot of moments that sprang to me. But I know when I was rewatching it recently, I was blown away. Like really when the show gets to like season two and three, all that legal stuff between Jimmy and Chuck and Howard and the way Kim's kind of in and out of that. That stuff is really great. Like, it's really good drama. I don't sit around watching lawyer shows a lot, though. So I don't know right. if it's like, are, is there no other lawyer show that's quirky and good in this way? But like, it's not this, these aren't the pivotal moments you think about. But when you're watching it, you go, maybe this was the show at its best, is when it was doing this really, this, you know, like this person's now working with this person or there's a little bit of a backstab here or now they have a little more information and the way Chuck and Jimmy, it's this dance of like, who's, who's fooling who, you know, at different points. Um, I think that it's hard to, like you remember the big scenes, but you don't necessarily remember all the back and forth in those moments. So I think season two uh, into season three of um, the show is a good example of what I'm saying because those were the seasons where I, I had fewer contenders for my list in terms of pivotal scenes. But when I looked at what happened, I was like, you know, there's, there's huge moments like there's scenes where Chuck says something to Jimmy that just hurts like hell and you never forget it. But when you when you when you start trying to winnow down what are the big moments in a show like this, those moments don't stand out. And that's why I've wondered, like, what is the best episode of Better Call Saul? Is it one of those uh, incremental move episodes where there's some brilliant filmmaking and some great acting, but you wouldn't say there's a huge plot point in it? Or is it like one of those roughly self-contained episodes, like the the first Gene episode of this return to the Gene storyline at the end of season six, where it, you complete the scam, that whole thing with what they're doing with the department store. It's all one and done right. in one episode. And it feels like you reach an end, like, it feels like a chapter. It doesn't feel like a, a, a a chess piece moving and another one moving, you know, which is what some of the episodes are. And I still don't know, is the best episode of this show a standout episode that feels different? Or is it just some episode you're not even thinking about where it's just, no, every moment was was perfect. And it was it was all these characters shifting ever so slightly, you know, in their storylines. Yeah. Um, I, and, you know, I haven't even tried to. Um, yeah, I could tell you my favorite episode of Star Trek, but I don't I haven't even tried to winnow, even though I've been looking at, at favorite moments. But I had the same realization as you when I um we talked a little bit before we started rolling that um, about um, I haven't had time to do a complete rewatch of the show, but I was surprised at how fast I've been making it through it, just put on an episode here and there. And I was also surprised at how even the episodes that I didn't remember one way or the other was just like full of great little moments of like compelling drama, you know, yeah. any, it, and, and that's the, that's the thing that, um, you know, I always liked Breaking Bad. And when I started watching Saul, um, I was I, just, you know, the first episode, I was like, okay, I can see this is going to be a really well done show. But it really, um, it crept up on me how, um, you know, I was probably two or three seasons in before I realized, oh, this is my favorite show on TV right now, yeah. you know? <laughs> and, 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 and part of the reason is it's just, um, it's just, it's just, and, and, and I've got, you know, uh, we, we can, it, it kind of goes into when I was thinking about my favorite moments, you know, the writing and the acting and, and the, and the directing and the cinematography, it's, you know, I hate to use the word immaculate over and over, but it's just a, it's really hard to, to find fault. And even the most, you know, basic episode they did, you know, there's so much great subtle work going on in so many different departments. It, it's, it's really, it, it's really, and, and, and I say this like you as, as someone who's, who's been on, who's actually made, you know, uh, you know, low budget movies and that sort of thing mm -hmm. to, to see guys like this, you know, crank out, you know, cinema, 
quality television week after week, it just, it's really humbling <laughs> in a way. Uh, I, my, my friend, uh, Andrew Belware, who, uh, who we've all talked with, you and I have both talked with about the show on, on Twitter. Um, you know, he and I sit back every, when, it, when the show was airing, we would sit back every week and go, how long did it take them to make this? You know, this is like 45 minutes, or actually, as the show went on, it, it turned into like a literal hour of TV with 15 minutes of commercials. You know, that yeah. was, that's, that's another fun thing about the modern age of, of, uh, of, of, of television. Every episode is not exactly like 44 minutes well, long or whatever. It's also AMC going, okay, final season of Better Call Saul, you you all can have the time you need like for whatever, we'll figure out what we need to yeah, do we'll with make the it schedule. Work. Because yeah. it also is space for more ads for them. Because those episodes, if you watched them with commercials, they were insanely spaced out where it's like, the only thing I've ever remember being worse was SNL sometimes watching that show. <laughs> it's like, did they just have a commercial after every sketch, literally, you know? Um, but at least but, with SNL, they're, they're, you know, they're having to like break down sets and stuff, so they right. need the time. <laughs> the commercials are, are useful there. But sometimes with Better Call Saul, it would give you a moment to reflect on a scene, uh, you know, which was kind of interesting. But what I found it did to some episodes was the commercial break would make you forget that tension that we're talking about where the, like moments are following up other moments, like mm -hmm. the, the last moment was meant to go right into this moment, not to have you taken a break for two and a half minutes. And so sometimes again, watching it the first time through, it felt like a less, uh, like the the momentum didn't feel as strong. I mean, I I never had any problem being feeling momentum going from one episode into the next, but watching them all in a rush, it does. It is another way of receiving. I also think this show works. It's like this show works as a great binge, and it works as maybe one of the last true make them wait kind of shows. Because one of the reasons why this ending felt so satisfying is because they were finally at the end. Like for me, saying I'm going to do this podcast about this show. Um, and I, with, with mutual friend of ours, Chris Garrison started this show, um, and we did it for four seasons and then he had a stroke and it was on, it was like, he wasn't able to do season five. And so the show kind of went away for a season. And I just, when this last season came in, I started getting excited about it. And I was like, you know, there's gotta be some way. And I thought the only way to fill Chris's shoes on this would be to get as many people as I could, uh, <laughs> to be <laughs> right, part of it. Right. Um, but it was an interesting thing that I had started this thing. I, there were times in there where I thought, do I really, am I really sticking with this between seasons? Chris and I would talk like, are we doing this again? And I always felt like I was sort of twisting his arm, but he wanted his arm to be twisted. And then when it came back to do it, it was like, no, I actually want to put a bow on all of this thought I've put into this thing. A and also just note that it has been rewarding. Like it could so easily have been a show where some episodes were just eh. And it was a little boring sometimes to be like, I'm back to talk about how great every moment of this show was. I just happen to love it. <laughs> and I like that at least for the time being, I have an answer to, if anyone ever asked me, what's your favorite TV show? Um, Someone's going to come up to me with a gun and ask that surely at some point, right? <laughs> I, I just like having an easy answer that I can back up that I know that like, not only did I make myself put a lot of thought into this show because I was doing a podcast about it, but also I, I was like, oh, I'm so glad this is the show I decided to do this with because the themes are so rich that even when it's just a scene of, you know, Mike trying to reconcile with his daughter-in-law, like there's these implications and, and this, this show had a, a minimum of those storylines that they cut to and you're like, oh, okay, we have to deal with this for eight minutes. You know, it was always like, oh, I, I'm, I want to see what's up with Kim. I want to see what's up with Chuck. Um, it was interesting how much it became like an ensemble show rather than just being on the, you know, than just oh, sticking gosh, yes. to Jimmy's point of view. But it, it, they had some yeah. great characters. And and other than Jimmy and Kim, they're all dead. <laughs> <laughs> well, and, and, you know, and, and I keep, I keep wanting to mention this, um, 
The other thing that just completely blows me away is that, you know, what we're talking about here, this, this great television show, it's, it's mostly a prequel. And, um, and prequels are kind of in vogue right now, but I find that like almost all of them are like narratively kind of dead ends because, well, we know what's going to happen with all these characters. What is, what is the point, you know? And, and so to me, on top of it being an amazing show, it's also an amazing show that is narratively, um, um, compelling, even though we kind of know where, you know, we kind of knew where a lot of, I mean, we didn't know what was going to happen to Kim, you know, and we didn't know what was going to happen to Jimmy, but we knew where, we knew where a lot of the other characters were going to end up. And it still was, was, was completely compelling. I I think that honestly, um, and not to be a hater, but like prequels are just like, can you think of another, I'm always asking people, you know, tell me a good prequel, you know, um, because other than Better Call Saul, I really, I really struggle to, to, to find any that are, that, they to me they inevitably end up feeling like um like they just over explain everything like 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 and 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 apologies to anybody who's a fan of it but that han solo prequel that they did for the star wars movie Mm -hmm. i just wanted to scream the whole time i'm like are you really gonna take a really like kind of obvious you know um name choice for a loner like han you know solo and actually explain why his last name is solo that's like so like pointless and and cheapens the whole you know han solo is a character name is a fun little joke and they ruin that <laughs> right i i i actually do really really kind of love that movie but i feel like the moments that are the worst moments are what i call prequelitis moments like that where they just think they have exactly. to wedge in some explanation to something we know or a reference to something we know and it's like no you don't need that, you know? You've got, especially in a script like co-written by Lawrence Kasdan, who knows how to write Han Solo. Like, he understands the ways in which Han Solo is cool and funny kind of at the same time. And right. so you don't need moments like that. But the worst to me, this, the, the names being Solo, like, I rolled my eyes at that. But the one that bugged me the most was when he meets Chewbacca, or he asks Chewbacca his name. And Chewie says something in in Wookiee language. Right. And he says, well, we got to get you a nickname. And it's like, that's just not something you say. It's like, plus, no. we, we certainly didn't need, I mean, you, I understand your point. We didn't need an explanation of the name Solo. We certainly didn't need an explanation of how he got Chewie from Chewbacca. You, do you know what I mean? Like, th- that's never been like a question that we had. That's like, that's like learning that Darth Vader uh, built C-3PO when he was a little boy. It's like, that adds nothing <laughs> to anything, you know? Well, um, but yeah, I, I had forgotten about the, the way that this movie felt like it needed to explain to to people who 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 all know someone with the nickname how nicknames work you know yeah, and that's right. just that that's maybe that that's a great point that's maybe the the most uh prequelitis thing that's ever happened in the history of prequels you know <laughs> um that being said i love um i love um oh i'm, I'm blanking on the the actor's name um that played uh, young han solo uh, alden Ehrenreich. uh or, sorry young lando calrissian oh oh um donald glover yeah yeah i, I really just want a a young uh, lando calrissian movie that's just donald glover walking around and saying cool stuff you know what is what's the, you know everything you've heard about me is true <laughs> yeah well, i mean that was a good take on him too that felt that felt 
fun and funny. It felt know? in the spirit. It felt in the spirit of of the of the Lando we know. Without you know, um, yeah, yeah. It didn't feel it didn't feel redundant like so much of like so much of that movie did. But anyways, let's let's not turn this into me griping about prequels. We'll be here all day. <laughs> well, no, I, like on the broader point about prequels, though, I agree. That just happens to be one like that. The feel of that movie, in some ways, was the Star Wars movie I was waiting for them to make after the original movies. So that that's why I, I just mm-hmm. have a lot of affection for like the the pulpy feel of that. Um, and and I do think there's something about Lawrence Kasdan writing Han Solo that just I I think he gets he gets him. But yes, what we just did was, and I should have a bell that goes off or something. We just did the obligatory Star Wars reference. Somehow on this show, we always end up going to Star Wars. It's not always me. I don't think it was me this time. I just want the record to show it is something yeah. in the air. It's because this show feels like a saga, you know. And when you talk about it, maybe you do compare it to other sagas in your head, not necessarily other lawyer dramas or whatever that it might be compared to. So I think that it is like when you talk about a sequel and a prequel, and I guess I'm just going to jump right into my first pick because I think this is not necessarily a scene that I think of. There are better scenes with Gene in them and more momentous moments with Gene in them. But, and you already alluded to it, but I just have to say in terms of a pivotal moment on this show, my first pick is the first Gene scene at the beginning of Uno, the the series premiere of Better Call Saul, where he's like making the um, where he's making the cinnamon rolls. You just see him working at Cinnabon. You see him going home to his like crappy little life. He looks out the window. He feels hunted. We see that he has like the tape in the box, and he puts on the tape and he plays the Saul commercials. Oh yes. Address unknown, not even a trace of you. Oh, what I'd give to see the face of you. I was a fool to stay away from you so long. I should have known there'd come a day when you'd be gone. Address unknown. And if you're if you're like a Breaking Bad nerd, and you're like you said it before, but I just I'm, I guess I'm just repeating what you said. Um, you knew this show was a prequel, and you started picturing, oh, it's going to be about wacky Saul Goodman before he started being the Saul that we know, and he's going to have all these crazy clients, and it's going to be maybe a little bit of a drama. And and we knew Michael McKean was playing his brother, and there was this character named Nacho, and all this stuff, but we didn't have any idea what the show was. And then they started off with this black and white scene of Gene that then they come back to every season to give you another Gene scene. And then in the sixth season, they didn't. And we got episodes at the end that were in that black and white world. I, I just think that first taste of that to realize, maybe just for this one scene, but something about that Gene scene implied, no, we're about to bookend this motherfucker. <laughs> it's like you thought you were getting a prequel and you wondered what it could be. And now we're actually telling you, you're actually going to get a sequel too. And we we don't even know what it means yet. These writers are famous for writing themselves into corners and not knowing what they're going to do yet. But they are brilliant also at picking up the exact details and threads that make it feel like it was planned all along. So when you look back, if you watch all the Gene scenes in succession and then watch that final four episode, you know, arc of Gene, it fits together mm-hmm. really beautifully. But just this little taste, just seeing this is what Saul Goodman is like, you know, it was an Easter egg for Breaking Bad viewers who remember him saying, I'm going to end up man 
managing a Cinnabon in Omaha is like a joke. <laughs> it makes that line that feels like a joke into not a joke. But beyond that, it just changed the vista of what this show could be. And after that, I wouldn't, like, I couldn't talk about it without saying, I, I want to know more about Gene. You know, like, that's what I was thinking about the whole time. Uh, both the credit to Bob Odenkirk's performance, but also their their cleverness at knowing they can put that kind of, literally the first scene of the show starts a question that we don't really get the answer to until, you know, six years later, whenever they were, whenever they were, oh, there's a kitten. Uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> they, um, they, um, uh, she's, 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 she, I was afraid she was going to, going to get on my phone that we're having the Zoom call via. So my wife and I, um, uh, I was talking to John before the call. We don't have kids, but we have two cats that we love very much. Uh, one of them is like 11 or 12 and one of them is like one or two. So we've got an old cat and a younger cat. Um, but also we are currently fostering and I, and people on Twitter keep telling me that I'm not, that I'm going to keep them, but I really am hoping to find a good home for them. We're fostering two, um, two girl cats. It's a calico and a tortoise, and they are absolutely sweet and absolutely adorable, beautiful cats. I would have a cat farm if I had the room for it, but you know, we're trying to, uh, trying to keep the peace with our existing cats. So we're going to try to find a good home for these little guys. Our, our, our old cat is named Constance and she is quite the diva to begin with. So now that she's an old, now that she's an old diva, she's even, she's even more set in her ways. But, um, but yeah, these, that being said, um, like I said, these guys are legitimately adorable and I'm in, I'm in our, I'm in, we're keeping them sequestered to the bedroom right now, which is where I'm doing, uh, this recording. So they're, uh, they're all running, they're all running wild and free right now. And I'm trying to keep them off the, uh, the audio equipment. Um, but yeah, we were talking about Gene. Like you said, that first, um, that first black and white scene, um, speaking of Star Wars, I always go back to, to what I think is one of the, the, the great moments in, in the first Star Wars movie where, um, Ben Kenobi says, oh yeah, the clone, oh yeah, your father, I knew him, I fought with him in the Clone Wars, and you're like, what? Yeah. <laughs> you know, so, so for the next, I don't know how many years, your mind is like trying to figure out what was all this Clone Wars thing about that Obi-Wan just kind cool. of, you know, yeah, he just kind of, you know, like, you know, mentioned without, you know, any explanation. And um, that first scene you're talking about with Gene is very much planting that seed like that, where, where, where we spend the next several years of our, you know, uh, Better Call Saul lives going, how does he end up with barely, you know, with, with so much less hair in black and white in this, you know, cold place, you know, making Cinnabons, you know, so it's a, it's a really great, um, it's a really great table setting and a really great tease and, 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 uh, yeah, yeah, it's 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 just right. It's just right. And we now know it sets up the event, even though at the time they didn't know they were setting up their end game. But like when the show got to that point where it it ended the color episodes and jumped into the gene episodes, each week you were just coming back going, "What am I going to get this week? Am I going to get color? Am I going to get black and white? Am I going to get a mix? Is this going to have flashbacks? Is it not? You know, I mean, it was just like you're in no man's land after that point of like, okay, they've 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 brought us to the point where we understand the transition to the Saul years. And now we're going to spend some time in this aftermath. And there was another kitten. Um, yeah. Uh, so yeah, anyway, I just, and again, like I said, I could have picked other moments as like, well, this gene moment is maybe the best moment, but that just, just blowing open the concept of what the show could be. And then somehow how they actually nestled the entire show within that, that idea of a bookend that the, that the, the real conclusion of this story, the whole story is located in, you know, in that part. And, and to find as we do later that he's the last one standing, like, the timeline stuff of when Walt died in comparison to that, you know, like it's just a few months since since Walt has died when when they catch Gene. 
Uh, but he's been in hiding for a longer time. He's been in hiding for like six months when Walt dies. So it's like, it's just an interesting, or four or five months at that point. So like he hasn't been in the Gene life for that long. But at the beginning of this show, you have no idea, like how long has he been, like you said, his hair looks different. His whole attitude seems different. You don't know that it's just later the same year. Yeah, and 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 I have not kept up with the behind the scenes stuff as well as you. And honestly, it I didn't know that, I didn't know that they were winging. So, so you're saying that when they when they first came up with the the Cinnabon flash forward, they had not they had not mapped out how that was all going to pay off yet. They just they it was just an inkling at that point, which which kind of blows me away even more <laughs> because it it just all seemed so perfect after it was all said and done. I think that's what they used to say they did on purpose was like they would write a season finale not knowing how they were going to get out of it. Like the famous example is they wrote that scene where Walt is getting the machine gun. Um, right. And didn't know that the end of the show was going to be him rigging it to pop out of the trunk to save Jesse. Like they didn't, they didn't have that part written yet. They just had him buying the machine yeah. gun and knowing it was going to feed into the end game. So there's a weird thing of like, there's bravado and trusting yourself as an artist in that. But also I think they had a, just an almost, they were, they got off on the idea of just a smart writer's room that, that keeps, I, I'm assuming there's tons of whiteboards with little lists of things they could go back to and things they could come. And I'm sure that like, Gene was always a big thing because once you introduce that, it's so tempting to say, well, what, what else is happening in this part of the story? If, if it was just a tease at the beginning of this show to say before, here's how he's fallen from the story you're about to see. But even then it implies they're going to come back to it at some point. And if you're watching a story about a guy who you know at the end of Breaking Bad left town because the heat was up, right? It's interesting to say there's more to that story that like, well, what happens to him after that? Because it really feels like Saul leaves Breaking Bad. And if there was never another moment with him, his ending is getting out of town while the getting's good, you know, and that's it. Right. But now right. we know that that wasn't enough for him. You know what I mean? Like just getting out of town and escaping with his head was never enough. And then we spend all the years of Better Call Saul understanding why that wouldn't be enough for Jimmy, why he would not, why he would be sitting there seething, even if he's living this, you know, reasonable, quiet life as Gene. So... Yeah. Well, and, and understanding how the, the writers work the show, um, there's kind of a meta element there where they're basically painting themselves into Jimmy type corners and then like Jimmy having to figure out how to get out of them, yeah, you know? Yeah. So that, that, that's a, that's a fun, they're kind of putting themselves in his shoes. You know, how, how are we going to be the cockroaches who get out of this situation? And like, you know, like Jimmy would do, would get totally. out of his situations. And like doing little pre Easter eggs for themselves of like, I don't know why this is important, but, but we're going to, we're going to make sure to establish this detail that, that could be important. And again, I think if you're any kind of writing, you understand that idea of letting the characters dictate a little bit of the story to you, but it does feel like mm -hmm. a high wire act for a show that has all this, all these elements in it. The fact that when they, that they would go off to meet, you know, between seasons and break the season, there were tons of things that we will probably never know that they probably were like, well, should we do this? Should we try that? You know, that like maybe would sound cool, but that for whatever reason, they, they ended up again and again, sticking to this very detailed story about this person's, you know, moral state. And sometimes in ways that you couldn't even tell when you were watching it, how much the show is focused on like the choices of this person, you know, and like how they affect other people. Why don't we get into your, your, your pick? Why don't you give us one of yours? Um, so I was I was telling you that, that there's so many great moments in, in the show that 
I, I, I kind of decided to try to find, instead of trying to just pick like, you know, five great moments or whatever, I tried to pick some things, some, some recurring things about the show that I liked and, and, and pick an example of one of those, um, you know, as, as a great moment. And, and I was going to start with a really simple one. Um, you know, when, when I'm talking with friends about the show, it's, there's I have a little debate about like why is this show so great is it the writing is it the acting is it the cinematography you know on one hand the scripts are so good that you could probably put them in front of any actors and and and, and they would work but on the other hand the acting is so 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 good I would watch um uh you know Ray Seahorn and and Bob Odenkirk and um uh, oh who's the guy that plays Mike Ehrmantraut um, uh, Jonathan Banks Jonathan Banks I would watch, I would literally watch those guys read the phone book. You know, they're just such compelling actors. And mm-hmm. um and so so my first pick was a really it's a really short scene, but um the the scene where Kim breaks down in ugly cries by herself on the bus mm-hmm. um at the end of I think it's season six, episode twelve, or in season six, episode twelve. Yeah, um, waterworks. There, there there's there's so much great um there's so much great um um, like back and forth acting on the show, but to watch her have to do this entirely internal thing where she's like really the only person on camera. And and we've all seen people crying in movies, but I mean, that was like ugly, ugly crying. You know what I mean? It was mm-hmm. completely, completely um, fearless and completely, um, th- there's no there's no vanity in acting like that. And it felt so real. I mean, which I guess is to your point, like it really felt like, the way you felt when when you are overcome. Exactly, exactly. It's so raw. Like I'm an easy cry at like a song or a movie or whatever, but when you mm-hmm. really have one of those cries, you are sort of like alone or you, in most cases, you don't let yourself have that moment unless you're alone or unless you're around someone who you really trust. And even then you're like, I don't want my this person that loves me to have the baggage of seeing me like this sometimes, because sometimes you just have to, but it's like, I feel that, that yeah, Ray Seahorn as an actor is just, brilliantly conveying that sense of and it always gets me in a movie when a character sits down and lets events hit them like you know maybe in life you don't have that tangible of a moment where you're like oh i finally sat down and dealt with this one thing and i cried but in movies you get to see the moment where it hits somebody right. and you're feeling like for kim it's like oh my god what happened to chuck what happened to howard what happened to jimmy what happened to me like there's it, it, it really feels like in a weird that that's coming in the second to last episode of this show. And you, you could have had that scene elsewhere in the show. Mm-hmm. Um, but having it so close to the end, it really feels like, oh, no, she's feeling this show for us in this moment. Like this scene stands in for like all the terrible things that have happened and like the human toll yeah. and just how sad it yeah. is, you know, just and, and her doing the like she and Jimmy have that conversation on the phone and his reaction is to go hard into to mean Gene and like, let's come up with mm-hmm. a scheme that's really shady where we drug people and we go into their house and steal their identities. You know, it's brilliant, but really shady. And her reaction to that, it's like he calls her bluff. And then she, uh, what, what do you, is there a word for, or a term for when someone calls your bluff and then you unbluff your bluff? <laughs> you yeah. like, where he, he basically says, well, oh, you're so smart. Why don't you turn yourself in? And then she gets off the phone with him and it's almost like she's paying it's almost like she's telling the cosmos what she wishes Jimmy would do. Like she actually goes and tries to take responsibility for the worst thing that she's ever done. Um, and you see it, it's almost foolhardy that she does it, but it's also got this, and in the show it plays as, there's a weird cosmic uh, 
mindfuck aspect to it because she's like, oh, that affidavit will sit in a drawer unless they ever have enough evidence. And then if they do, maybe they'll pursue it. But this this story that feels like, oh my gosh, this would be a story. Any pr- prosecutor would jump on this. It's like, no, if there's no evidence, they really can't do anything with it, you know? And it becomes this like, it's like the Ark of the Covenant being put in a crate and put in a warehouse, you know? <laughs> it's this weird feeling right. of like, oh, that could be the existential threat, the sort of Damocles that's over Kim f- forevermore is will this, you know, will this drop? Will this, you know, and we find out obviously that's not where they were going but where kim's leaving it at that moment she has no idea what's going to happen to her she, she she's not off the hook just because she tried to do the right thing by a long shot you know um yeah but it still feels like that moment on the on the tram is her kind of thinking like almost like she can't believe this is the strain that she's under but she is looking back on the whole thing and maybe she's even being more raw than she even was around you know howard's widow she had to keep her she had to keep a stiff upper lip so she didn't seem self-pitying maybe um, so of course for Kim, it happens around strangers. She's not going to let anyone who knows her see her that way. Do you know what I mean? Like, that's just not her style. Right, right, right. And, and like I said, it's, it's just such a, it's, it's, it's such a, a, a great Reese Horn moment, you know, and, and then at the end of, you know, she does such a great job with that again, being, you know, such a, with nobody to play off or anything. And then at the end of the scene, like a stranger's hand, we don't see the stranger, but their hand comes in the frame to try to, you know, uh, which is just a great little, a great little topping, you know, on, 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 you, you know, having worked with actors and not being an actor myself, um, you know, I can't imagine how you would direct that scene. You know, you, you've just, you're just going to have to have an actor who can really do that work internally like that and, and, and make that, make that make that play to the camera like that so so and and again we could go through um we could do multiple episodes of the show just about great acting moments that she's had because i feel like that she was the i feel like that she was kind of the x factor that came into the show a lot of the a lot of the actors that we loved from 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 breaking bad got to do great work on the show but i i don't remember ever seeing her and you know i don't know much about her career before this show and right. she just came in and and with with a lot of heavy hitters, and 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 not only held her own, but kind of kind of blew them blew them away sometimes, you know. Well, I think it's interesting that what you said before about characters you could worry about on the show, and I said all the new characters except for Kim are dead. But it is true that when they announced the cast for this show, it was Michael McKeon, it was uh, uh, Michael Mando uh, who played Nacho, it mm-hmm. was Patrick Fabian who was a character actor you might have recognized, but in general a kind of unknown face for television viewers. Uh, as Howard Hamlin, and it was Ray Seahorn as Kim. And it kind of seemed like, oh, they're setting up a world of lawyers, and there's this guy, Nacho, he might be, you know, like, they, I think I, I knew the name Ignacio from from Saul's line in Breaking Bad, where he says, it wasn't me, it was Ignacio. So I was wondering, oh, is this the Nacho that, that I mean, are they being clever with that, going back and inventing right. a character to retrofit onto a line? Um, but it felt like, okay, maybe this is going to be like Mike and Nacho are on the crime side of this story. And then we got the lawyer side. And I mean, I didn't expect that they were going to have a kind of quote unquote girlfriend character, but a lot of shows, that's what Kim would have been. She would have been there to be the voice of reason. She would have been there to have moments where you can see if he's up or he's down because of her feelings about him. But they very quickly developed somebody who was so much more interesting and multifaceted than that. And I don't have a note of which episode it's in, but early on, she says to him, uh, you don't save me, I save me. Um <laughs> And it's such a great comment on her as a character. Yeah. You could compare her values to Jimmy's. You could be shocked at times that she was the less uh, circumspect and, and compassionate of the two of them. And other times you could totally see that he was like something that happened to her in some ways. He was, 
you know, he, he kind of took her on this ride in a lot of ways, even if she was driving the car at different times. So I don't know, just such an interesting character. To some degree, I mean, they were they were codependent, you know, and um, and, and, and that was, yeah, the, if totally. I'm remembering right, that was kind of the way that when she finally left him, she was like, you know, she, she was like, we're we can't do this anymore. We're, we are not, this is not healthy. <laughs> no matter how much we might love each other. And also that whole thing where she's like admitting to how fun it was for her. I mean, that's a, that's a, a brutal moment that she wanted to keep the fun going. Mm-hmm. I told you that Lola was alive. And you didn't tell me? I thought, I thought it was a one in a million chance that he'd come for us. I thought he would be caught if he did. And I told myself I was protecting you. But that's not the truth. The the real reason I didn't tell you was because I knew what you'd do. What would I do? You'd, You'd blame yourself. You'd fear for me. You'd want us to run and hide until you were sure I was safe. You would pull the plug on the scam and then, and then, uh, we'd break up. And I didn't want that. Because I was having too much fun. Um, Well, since we're talking so much about Kim, I'll go into my next pick. This is from uh, episode uh, nine of the fifth season. This is an episode called Bad Choice Road. And it's exactly what we were just saying about Kim. It's that moment where... Uh, they get a phone call from Mike. Like they're having this back and forth about what Jimmy just went through in the desert, and she doesn't know the true story yet. And he hasn't been open with anyone because he's trying to protect Kim, kind of retroactively after telling her what he was doing and getting her kind of in the in the world of like now the now Lalo knows who she is, and Mike is telling him out in the desert. I wouldn't have told my wife what you told your wife, you know, as far as knowing that we're out here and all that. So there's all this guilt that Jim, that Jimmy's dealing with, but he still has PTSD from what happened out in the desert. And then they get a call from Mike and he says, put the phone down and let me hear uh, what's going on, um, but hide it so no one can see it, but I need to hear what's happening there. Um, and then there's a knock at the door and it's Lalo. It's like, Mike's on the way. We don't really know what he's going to do to try to help him. Kim doesn't know the whole story. Jim only knows, Jim, Jimmy only knows the lie that he's supposed to tell to Lalo. And Lalo knows something's up. And it's just this, it's one of the most tense scenes that the show ever did. Because you're never more worried about Kim maybe than you are in that moment. Like she feels like Mike could try to shoot Lalo and could hurt Kim. Uh, Lalo could shoot Kim. Kim doesn't know the truth at all. And yet she's seeing how Jimmy is just stuck. He's like, he can't, he can't change his story. If Lalo, I don't care how many times Lalo has a gun on you and says, tell me the story again, which is what Lalo does. Jimmy, it's like, if I change one detail of the story, that's it for me. You know what I mean? Like maybe Kim and I both die because he says you lied to me. So I have to stick to this, this lie that Mike and I constructed. And then Kim learns both learns kind of what happened because Lalo's like, well, then why, if, if this all happened the way you said, mm-hmm. why did your car have bullet holes in it? Cause Jimmy mm-hmm. says he had car trouble mm-hmm. and then walked through the desert uh, on a horse with no name and, uh, you know, made it home. And, uh, 
And Lalo sees his car with bullet holes in it on the side of the road in a ditch and just doesn't believe it. And Kim hears that detail about the bullet holes in the car. And she says, bullet holes? And she like looks at, you can see her putting together that this story that Jimmy told her is not true. John, you, you got to get out of my head. This is actually, I just want to say real quick, this is actually one of my alternate picks for how great of an actor Reese Seahorn is. So go ahead, continue, go ahead, continue. But I mean, it's, in, it's, it's all in that moment. Maybe you could speak to it too. She figures out what's going on and figures out that Jimmy... It's a funny callback, too, because in that episode, this is one of their little callbacks, you know, her saying, you don't save me, I save me. In that, I think it's the earlier in that episode, but if not, it's like in the previous one, when she's like sponge bathing Jimmy after what happened to him in the desert. And she's talking about the, like Lalo, and he says, um, you don't see Lalo, I see Lalo. Meaning like, I'm trying to kick you out of the game now that I've brought you in, you know, right. by telling you what's going on. And what's funny about that is in the moment, it feels like he's really trying to say, watch it, Kim, this is more serious than you know. But then later, if it's either that episode or the next, Kim's the one saving his bacon when it comes to Lalo. So it's like, it's like, but I mean, I don't blame Jimmy for that moment of false bravado because he's the PTSD. Bob Odenkirk plays it brilliantly that like Jimmy's really rattled by yeah. what happened. And even in, even in that scene in the desert, there's a great, the show knows itself so well. There's a part where there's a gun that has fallen near him and he reaches out and grabs the gun and kind of looks at it and doesn't like, he just throws it down. Like he doesn't really know what <laughs> right. to do with a gun. It's like, this, this is the show saying. Yeah, he's not a cowboy. Yeah, not at all. Not at all. He never has been. Yeah. So anyway, that's, that hurt and pain is in Jimmy's face and all he can do is try to get Kim out of there and he's like, begging for Lalo just to let her leave. And Lalo's like, no, no, I just want to, hey, we're hanging out, you know? And so that's like, the, that's in a weird way, Lalo at his best, that actor is so great at right. playing that oily charm and then right. like those dark- Menacing. Like the eyes are like beetle black eyes and he's just looking at them and he keeps saying, no, tell me again, tell me the story. And then Kim finally just jumps in and the way she, her defense is brilliant because she kind of pokes at Lalo in a way that you don't think anybody would get away with where she basically is like, what is your problem that you're coming here and shaking down Saul Goodman, the guy who got you your money and obviously was the only person you could trust to do it because you asked him to do it. So like, she's like, I don't know what's, what's going on over there at Lalo <laughs> HQ. She doesn't say that, but she's kind of like, what kind of Mickey Mouse operation are you running yeah. when this is your move yeah. is coming down here and threatening Saul. And the way she says Saul Goodman, it's like, it's got all the, it's like this, I don't know. It's like, she knows the connotation of what this is, that, but she also, it's a little hurtful to Jimmy to think that what she's saying is like, yeah, you're worried about him? This cockroach, you know, you really are down here threatening this guy? She totally saves Jimmy's life in that moment, it seems, and her own, perhaps, you know, but like, it, it really feels like there's no way out of this situation. And then Kim swoops in. And also after that, seems to have, she seems to fully grasp like, oh, this is what Jimmy, Jimmy really went through something horrifying. No, it's a great, great scene. It's, it's a great, um, it's a great scene for Kim, the character, and it's a great scene for, for, for Reese Horn, the actor, you know, because it shows you what a good lawyer that Kim is, you know, for one thing, yeah. you know, and, 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 and what, a, what a formidable, you know, lawyer that she is and, and a formidable person that she is. And then, you know, Reese Horn just acts the heck out of it. I, and that, that's why it was on my, that was, it was one of my backup picks for another example of, of how much I love the acting on the show and, and, and especially how much I love her acting, you know, she just, yeah, yeah, great scene. Um, as soon as you said, uh, as soon as you said, and the whole thing with Mike calling and telling him to put the phone down, oh, that's just creepy, you know, it's just creepy. <laughs> yeah, I know. 
No, because it's like he's the one guy who you know doesn't call unless it's important. And he doesn't tell you more than you need to know. And if you don't need to know anything until tomorrow at noon, he's going to say, be right. there tomorrow at noon. So for him to say, you got to do this now, it's like, oh shit, listen to him. And also, I like that back and forth throughout the show between Jimmy and Mike. That's another example of just, there's a connection there. There's a relationship there. Neither man really wants to be friends with the other man on a weird level. Mm-hmm. But they both have moments of kind of reaching out. Like there's definitely times where Jimmy wants Mike to be like his buddy in in crime. Mm -hmm. And at best, uh, Mike kind of tolerates Jimmy, but he does sort of look out for him sometimes or try to save him from himself. That's actually related to one of the motifs or techniques that I wanted to point out that they use on this show, which is when a bit of dialogue will be kind of spoken to one character and then repeated from that character to another character and so on. Something that Mike tells Jimmy was actually taken from an earlier scene. Remember the plot line of Mike in the, the support group with Stacy, uh-huh. uh, his daughter-in-law? And at one point, she's talking about having a day where she doesn't think about Maddie. I just saw that episode the other day, yeah. So she says, oh, there was a point where I, re- I realized I hadn't been thinking about it. Stacy? Um, today, I, I got up and I took a shower. Kaylee woke up on her own and got herself ready for school. It was just a regular morning. I made... French toast for breakfast, and we talked about the self-pasting toothbrush she's making for the science fair. I took her to school and went to work, and then I realized it. I don't know why I noticed it just then, but I hadn't thought about Maddie all morning. Not once. When I was making French toast, why didn't I remember that it, it's his favorite? I think about Maddie every single time I make breakfast, but not today. And they weren't just minutes. There were hours that I didn't think about. And if I can go hours, then then, then why not a whole day? Why not a whole week? I mean, what if I lose the sound of his voice? What if I forget him completely? And then in uh, season five, episode nine, Um, So after they get back from the desert and their ordeal has really rattled Jimmy, but before Kim has any idea what the truth is and Jimmy's kind of trying to hide it and move forward and he's Mm -hmm. asking Mike kind of like, how do you deal with this kind of thing? And Mike, in an attempt to... Uh, you know, help Jimmy out. He sort of repurposes what Stacy said about how, you know, just a day where maybe you will stop thinking about it and that's when you'll realize that you actually can forget. You said this goes away, so what's the time frame on that? It's different for different people, I suppose. For me. When will this be over for me? Well, here's what's going to happen. One day, one day you're gonna wake up, eat your breakfast, brush your teeth, go about your business. And sooner or later, you're gonna realize you haven't thought about it. None of it. And that's the moment you realize you can forget. And then later, Jimmy paraphrases that basic concept to Kim about what happened to Howard. I had not put together that, that, that I had not put together that, that 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 was a motif that had played over. So, but yeah, that's that's so because those are all great scenes individually. But I had not put I had not put together that those all work together like that. That's so great. That's so great. One day we'll uh, 
we'll wake up and brush our teeth and we'll go to work. And at some point we'll suddenly realize that we haven't thought about it at all. None of it. And that's when we'll know. We'll know we can forget. think of it as the Lebowski effect because in the big Lebowski there's lots of things that Jeff Bridges hears someone say and then he says to someone else like in the parlance of our time this aggression will not stand man <laughs> this aggression will not stand man is a line that I, th I know that movie's overquoted but that line is like one of my favorites because it's just so such a great delivery and we know exactly if you pay attention you know exactly where he got it he's getting it from Bush yeah right <laughs> Which is hilarious. <laughs> it can be done in a corny way where a character throws a line back at another character, but that's not really what we're talking about. I'm talking about that thing of like a character a season later, episodes later, is like taking some wisdom that someone gave to them and trying to say it yeah, to another person. Yeah. And sometimes the way they, they mangle it or change it is part of the fun, but other times it's it's just, oh yeah, here's a theme of this show, is that you know the way you get past these horrible events is just put one foot in front of the other until the new you is the you know is in charge of things. I don't know if I have anything else to say about that scene, unless you do, we can move on to your next pick. That's a good uh, segue, um, because one of, one, one of the other things, you know, like I said, I'd kind of broken my my favorites down by by categories it were and um you know saul can be the it's a it's a really ambitious show there's a lot of scenes for example in better call saul that they could have easily covered with like just one two shot and what they end up doing is like putting the camera on a helicopter or something and getting a you know thousand foot view of the angle to to show some subtext or something like that so you know it was never a show that was afraid to to, to go big uh, which 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 gets into mine and andrew's often discussions of like how long did it take to make this for you know this hour of television um and and right. and, and so the the it's it's not really a moment, but that whole episode where they were doing their the where where Mike and 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 Jimmy are are stuck in the desert, you know their Lawrence of Arabia episode. I mean, it's just such an insanely ambitious yeah. episode with so much going on. If I had to pick a moment, um, the moment where um, you know there's that the, there's the one guy that they didn't kill in the initial shootout who's kind of who's kind of combing the desert for him in the truck. And um, in a moment of desperation, Jimmy puts on the, the, the space blanket and runs out to distract him. And then Mike shoots him and, or shoots the car. And you think, oh, well, if they can kill this guy, they can just take his car and drive home. And of course, there's this insane car wreck that happens when, when the bullet actually goes in and the car flips and everything. And this is crazy stunt. And then, you know, it's great from a cinematic standpoint. And then narratively, it's great because our heroes are back or our anti-heroes are back before we left them with no way to get out of this desert other than to walk, you know? <laughs> and it does that without any dialogue about like, oh, I was hoping we'd get the car and we didn't, or anything, you yeah, know, I mean, yeah, just yeah. you know that when Mike walks over there and down to the point even that the, I believe like 
the water that they had in the car had a bullet hole in it. And <laughs> exactly. so it's running out. You know? Exactly. At the beginning of the final episode of the show, when they cut to Jimmy's car out in the desert as like the opening image, because they were about to get us into that. Mm -hmm. But even just as a poetic image at the end of the show, cutting back to Jimmy's bullet riddled car in the desert would have been a good image, even if they didn't have that scene of Mike and Jimmy they were going to give us. Uh, but then they cut to a space blanket on like a, a cactus. And I, at that point, thought, oh, I guess Jimmy might have had a space blanket in his car that's a, a leftover from the Chuck days mm -hmm. of his story, mm -hmm. you know? But what really that space blanket is, is like Jimmy and Mike in that episode out in the desert, they, Mike pulls out a space blanket and huddles under it and he offers one to Jimmy and Jimmy just looks at it and says no. And it's so loaded that we know why Jimmy, uh, <laughs> you know, like, like Jim, Jimmy wouldn't take it. So what you said about him putting on the space blanket, that too is like a moment of him sort of shedding himself. Yeah. If you say space blanket, I'm going to, I'm going to think of Chuck Miguel at this point, you know, um, not that they come up that often, but it is something that if, that is like the show picking some little detail to say that it doesn't even matter where the space blanket come from. If we, sh if we show an image of that, especially in this desolate desert setting and the wind is blowing it and it's rattling on a cactus, it just shows us that Chuck is still looming large over this story, you know, and, and even though he's been gone for three seasons at this point, that we're still thinking about like what he means to the story. So, but I agree that episode is a great one. I, I, I tried to think of one moment from it too. Um, and I could, didn't, couldn't necessarily pick a moment, but it is, a, it's back to what we were saying before. It's a standout episode. Like it's a, it's an episode that you could put in a bubble and say, this episode does something a little different from the other episodes because it lingers on the story of what they're doing out there so so long and and there is nothing grand about it like beyond a certain point they're just out there drying out and getting sunburned and Jimmy's having to drink piss and it's just like it's like it, it's one of those like okay Jimmy's Jimmy is a cockroach type episodes I guess where you come out of that just going okay he just barely survived and maybe there's something of that, that Saul Goodman, that Gene, that whatever that spiteful guy that's inside is part of the reason he lived through that. I, and Kim, I mean, I think the two things that they're dealing with at the end of the show are like why he made it out of that is that he's got a little bit of a fuck you energy. So he's not going to die and if and give you the pleasure. And also when, when he was thinking about Kim, I mean, it's clear that Mike was thinking about, uh, Mike always is talking about Kaylee. Uh, when he's talking about what he's living for, whether he mentions it or not. Mm -hmm. But, you know, maybe at this point in the show, if you didn't recognize how legit their romance was, you might miss how important it was to Jimmy, the idea of getting back to Kim mm -hmm. and like Kim not worrying. Um, so yeah, all, all, all really cool. I, and I love the, you, you call it the Lawrence of Arabia episode. I do love the little makeshift, you know, uh, <laughs> like headdress that, that Jimmy's wearing to protect himself from the heat. And um, it's just brilliant. Well, and it, it, it really... In, in, in the craft on display, um, like I said, just from a just from an ambition standpoint, you know, there's a, there's a crazy shootout at the start of that episode. There's the stunt that I talked about where they you know flip the car and everything. There's just the whole crew being out there for who knows how many days, you know, shooting like literally in the desert. You know, it's one thing to go and shoot in the offices at at, at Hamlin Hamlin. It's Hamlin Hamlin McGill, right? Um, yes. Or is, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's one. It's it's one thing to go to go shoot in the in the boardroom there when it's like air conditioning and everybody's got shades, you know. But but to, to take the whole crew out into the desert and shoot for who knows how many days to get all that all that stuff is just is just really, um, you know, it shows a lot of dedication from the from from the from the creatives on the on the show. It's also the name of this episode is Bagman. Yeah. Um, it's also the episode where when the one one of the few things they cut away to is Kim going to visit Lalo because Kim's really worried and nervous, and that scene is fantastic. Oh my gosh, 
Oh my god! It's a little precursor to the scene later uh-huh. where Lalo shows up and knows uh-huh. who he is, who she is. But I love Lalo putting together. That's both the scene where Lalo says "La Cucaracha" about Jimmy. <laughs> he'll be fine. Um, he'll be fine. <laughs> yeah, but even if he's not, what's one more day? If he is dead, then what's waiting the day going to do? You know, I mean, he's just such a. He's so practical, but also so cold about it. Exactly. But also watching him put together, like he totally uses this later. You know, th- their relationship. He knows that he's got a wedge point between them. Um, that he can make one of them worried about the other and use them, you know. But in that moment, it's like the way Tony Dalton plays it, he goes, oh, I get it. You're his wife and you love him. <laughs> it's like he's finally going like, oh, okay, somebody cares about this guy. And he's telling them my business, you know, like, and she knows that he was out there working for me. Yeah. And so it's like wheels are turning for Lalo that you have to believe this is, you know, this is a big reason why he comes to, to see Jimmy to get his story later, like rather than rather than just going, okay, that guy came through for me. Yeah. If you tell me where you sent him, I won't alert the authorities. I won't tell anyone. I will find him, and you'll get your money, Mister Salamanca. Who the hell are you that he tells you my business? He didn't betray your confidence. We're married, which means I have spousal privilege. Anything he says to me stays with me. No one can make me discuss it. It's as bulletproof as lawyer-client privilege. To his wife? Yes. Una buena. Bien por él. So you're his wife, and you love him, and he didn't come home last night. And you got scared enough to come down here and talk to me. (laughs) What makes you think he didn't run off with my money, huh? He did not run off with your money. Yeah, maybe not. Not without you. Just tell me where you sent him. That's all I need. I don't think so. Your man, he's, um, he's like the cucaracha, you know? Born survivor. If trouble found him, give it a day. If he's alive, he'll show. And if he's... Well, then, day's not going to make a difference, is it? All right, well, nice to meet you, Mrs. Goodman. I don't know, I just feel like that, that scene in that episode is another one that I, I love, because Kim's really kind of back on her heels, you know? It's, that's why maybe seeing her pull it together and talk Lalo out of the room later is so thrilling is because in that moment, he kind of leaves while she's trying to say more to him. Yeah. He's like, Mr. Salamanca. And he's like knocking on the door to leave. Like he's gotten what he knows out of the situation. Now that's enough for him to go, okay, this, this, this Saul Goodman guy has, has a, has a, a hot wife who's worried about, yeah. you know, and he's really fixated on, you know, I think he's a couple of times says, how did you, how did you, you know, how, why is she with you? Yeah, Jimmy, like, Jimmy's yeah. hitting uh, is, uh, is, 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 is fighting above his weight, you know? <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Right. But I think it's just, it, it's, it is, yeah, it's a fun moment because you recognize that there's no way these characters could ever like admire each other in a way that's friendly, but there is a weird bit of respect that he has for that whole situation. That's just kind of, you know, it's part of that weird grin he has where he's in a situation where he might still kill you. I, I, I heard the actor, someone asked, does, he seems like a charming guy. Is he someone that we should want to share a beer with? And I might be misquoting, but he was basically like, yes, but only one beer. You don't want to be hanging out on a bender with Lalo. Lalo. <laughs>
I was thinking at the end of this show, which characters have untold stories that could be the basis of another show or a movie or a miniseries. And Lalo's kind of near the top of my list of like, he's like the evil James Bond slash Terminator character that he he's done shit that we've we we can't picture you know sure. i don't i don't want them to go back and tell but i'm saying he's one of the few characters who seems to have like a story that we don't know and uh a, a, a transformation like how do you become that guy is an interesting question you know what i mean like if you start out as just a child any child right. how do they become lalo salamanca it's an interesting question like i know when i was doing my rewatch i got excited when i knew lalo was coming up because he is such a shot in the arm both in terms of just the show needs a baddie but also the kind of baddie he is he's not hector he's not tuco he's not uh he's not gus he's not mike you know he's he's there's something different about him yeah yeah gus and mike are i find them particularly enjoyable because their 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 whole thing is like restraint, you know. Um, you know, they might be doing shady stuff, but but they're going to be really smart and really thoughtful about it. And and Lalo just seems like a, a even though he's effective, he also seems really unhinged, you know. Like like mm -hmm. well, like maybe he will just shoot Howard Hamlin in the uh, in the head, you know, on a whim. <laughs> I, I thought about it. I don't know that once Lalo showed himself, I don't think Howard was ever walking out. That apart. That'd be that'd be way too simple. Um, I guess since we're in this little puddle of story about um about uh, Lalo and Kim, and we've just been in and out of their apartment because your your last pick was the the we we tangented off into Lalo territory, but your pick was, was, the, was the desert, the, yeah, the desert, yeah. Um, but but since Lalo was our kind of window back into my next pick, I will mention the episode uh, plan and execution, the very brutally and cleverly named episode plan and execution uh, that starts with them finally putting into action their scheme against Howard that we've been seeing them set up in the prior episodes. It's the seventh episode of the season. So we've spent six episodes watching them do this and that over here and this, and all this stuff's been building to this episode that starts off kind of fun, even though I, I felt from the start like, uh, you know, Howard's been a douchey guy, but I've always thought that the show did a great job of showing us that he wasn't as bad as our lead characters think he mm -hmm. is, you know? Mm -hmm. And this episode is the one that really cements that. As a friend of mine said, what a horrible last day of your life. <laughs> Uh, this is for, for Howard Hamlin. It's a terrible end. The whole episode's great, but uh, and I should say, uh, written and directed by Thomas Schnauz, who is one of the show's like you know main writers and directors over the years. So he's really good at this kind of crime. He does that hard boiled stuff that I've talked about really well. Right. Um, and ending this episode with with Howard's execution in front of Jimmy and Kim, which is like a way for Lalo to like silence them and also let them know this situation is. Is taking a turn, you're not going to do what happened last time is not going to happen again. You know, Kim's not going to talk Lalo out of this room. So like that conclusion is, is amazing and brutal and awful. And you think about Howard and it's so sad. And I like that the show dealt with the aftermath of that in a serious way that like in the last episode, they're still talking about what, ha what happened to Howard. Right, as, right, like, right. A terrible thing. This moment of a character getting to just say what, say the truth, like, what he says to Jimmy and Kim in that moment, it's kind of what Kim echoes later when she breaks up with Jimmy. He's like, you're, but he's saying in this other way, he says, you guys are perfect for each other. He says, you have a piece missing. <laughs> I jotted this note down because it was interesting when I thought about the theme, looking deranged for telling the truth, 
like someone calling someone on their shit and knowing the truth and looking deranged, you know, like there's several times in this story where we know the truth and we see someone is, is accusing someone of the truth. And often because it's Jimmy that's being accused, we're sort of rooting for him to get away with it. Like Chuck, this happened with where Chuck would be like telling Jimmy the truth about what he was doing, but we're rooting for Jimmy because Chuck's kind of an asshole and all these other things. Yeah. But this person is in this moment, like they're telling the truth. And Howard has had a slow burn this whole episode of people thinking he's insane when he's telling, when he knows exactly what Jimmy and Kim did. And he, he nails it. Like, he's like, oh, they must have, they're, they're, the, the, the private investigator worked for them and they, uh, they put a chemical on the photos. He puts it all together, but he just sounds crazier the more truth he spills. So it's great to see him tell Jimmy and Kim, like, the final truth, which is like, I know I'm on to you. You know, I want you to know I figured it out and, and there's no excuse and you're terrible. And then he says, I'm going to spend the rest of my life, uh, you know, punishing you for it basically. And that's when the, we see that flicker of the candle and Lalo's in there. And I think, oh, could Howard have just said, all right, I'm out of here. And <laughs> could he have left? Like, is there any saving Howard at that point? Why go through this elaborate plot just to burn me to the ground? Burn you to the ground. <laughs> Howard, come on. You, you'll be fine. You always land on your feet. Oh, yeah, sure. The Sandpiper Settlement, HHM share, will be substantial, absolutely. Even though I humiliated myself. And my clients and peers will whisper that Howard Hamlin's a drug addict. You're right. I've worked my way through worse. Debt. Depression. My marriage falling apart. Oh, yeah. Been sleeping in the guest house for the better part of a year. Uh, just one more thing good old Howard has to work through. But yes, I will land on my feet. I will be okay. But you? Far from it. You too. You two are soulless. Jimmy, you can't help yourself. Chuck knew it. You were born that way. But you? One of the smartest and most promising human beings I've ever known. And this is the life you choose. All right. You're too tight to drive. I'm calling <laughs> oh, you. Oh, good. Phony compassion. No, very, very believable, but I'm far from done. Oh, no, no, no. You are done, Howard. Sorry, but you need to stop this now and you need to go home. You're perfect for each other. You have a piece missing. I thought you did it for the money, but now it's, it's so clear. Screw the money. You did it for fun. You get off on it. You're, you're like Leopold and Loeb, two sociopaths. All right, that's enough. Oh, you know it's true. You just have the guts to admit it. Great. Now you need to go. I'm going to make it clear to everyone because I'm going to dedicate my life to making sure that everybody knows the truth. Believe it. You can't hide who you really are forever. Howard? Howard? Howard, you need to leave. But the, the visual storytelling of the, the flickering candle, because we yeah. saw it flicker when the door opened earlier. And so we know that that candle flickers when like there's a change of pressure in the apartment, mm -hmm. someone enters. Mm -hmm. and the so when we see that candle flicker while Howard's talking, and Jimmy and Kim are like, they see Lalo come out of the shadows before he does. And, and it's a horror movie moment for both of them. But for Jimmy, it's like supernatural because he thought Lalo was dead until that moment. And I think Bob Odenkirk plays that. Ray Seahorn does as well. But Bob Odenkirk has that extra layer mm -hmm. to play of he literally says, how, how? He can't form a thought <laughs> because he thought Lalo was dead. Yeah. And now they're trying to get Howard to realize you don't want to 
don't mess around this. I don't know. It's just the, the tension. It's like a repeat. I almost felt bad putting it on the same list because it's like the bad choice road scene with Kim and Lalo. But it's like the air is different now. Lalo's not messing around. There's no, there's no, and, and our heroes have fallen. They've gone down a rung because of what they've done to Howard. And we, where we were kind of vouching for him before, now we really can't vouch for, it's not like they deserve to see Howard get shot and he doesn't deserve to get shot, but this is the outcome. Like, even though Lalo couldn't have been predicted, you started fearing for Howard the second he started kind of fighting back because him fighting back against Jimmy and Kim means he's now involved in kind of whatever they're involved in, you know, and he could show up on the same night as Lalo. He thought that they were being, you know, petty and, and cruel, but he had no idea all this other stuff that they were wrapped up in. And, 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 and that was, you know, he, 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 he misunderstood his opponents, you know, basically. Um, but it's the, the, just the, the horror and the brutality of, of him getting shot at point blank range in front of those two is, like you say, it's it's like a horror movie, you know. It it really is. It really is. It really is scary to watch. And yeah. and you know, sometimes in uh, you know, going back to my go, going back to Star Trek, you know, they they would kill off a couple of red shirts every episode. It'd be like Kirk would be upset about it for you know ten seconds, and then he would go on to the next order of business. Yeah. And 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 this was a death that, that like you said, it 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 weighed on the the characters the rest of the the rest of the series. Um, they didn't just, you know, they didn't just brush it off. It was, it was, it was really, really monumental from a storytelling standpoint and from a, just a general, like, you know, plot standpoint, you know, it was a, it was a really monumental moment in the show. It raised the stakes. Well, what's interesting is it raised the stakes of Kim's moral future, but I think it took away the pressure on the idea that she was maybe going to be the one to die. Like it felt like some collision between the lawyer world and the, the crime world was about to happen and that that would be the thing that would bring Jimmy further into this world. And so Kim being killed, I think a lot of people, the reason they were so fixated on that as a possibility is because it just seems like the kind of thing that would happen in this story that would make it take a dark turn, you know? But I think what was cool was showing us, no, it didn't have to be Kim for it to be the dark turn you were waiting for. You know, yeah. it didn't have to yeah. be that Kim died it was better from a character standpoint to keep Kim around and to have made this Howard thing. Let's not forget Jimmy at different points was totally willing to cut bait for one reason or another. Like he loves the scheme, but he's also an opportunist and a, and a practical guy about certain things. And he would have like when Kim had to go to like, he, he was all for Kim staying on the road to the, the meeting with Davis and Maine, mm -hmm. which I think it's very interesting that they gave Kim the, okay, you want all this money from the Sandpiper settlement, and so you're trying to rush that by ruining Howard and making that happen faster. Now Clifford Maine is dangling this job in front of you with this group where you might be able to do legitimately what you were thinking you needed to get the money illicitly to do. And Kim still stays with the Howard. Like, you know what I mean? Her vendetta against Howard and the fun she's having in the scheme is still stronger than, than her desire to do what's right. And I think that Jimmy she kind of maybe correctly pegs him as, you know, as Mike says, you're made of sterner stuff. It also means she's kind of more stubborn about this particular thing that Jimmy would have been like, oh, you know, it sucks that we did all that planning and then we had to shit can. Yeah. But it was the best move. It was the best play. And you got your deal. Yeah. It's just an interesting thing. And I think it's another way the writers really honored Kim as a character by not making her this person who was caught up in the draft of <clears throat> what Jimmy was doing. She was a person who was driving the story a lot in that last season. So you kind of need that. And also her thing with Howard back and forth, it, this really is like, you know, she always has kind of had a problem with him that is justified by his behavior at times, but also you could tell like 
you know, they both vilified. It was funny to see a show acknowledge that and yet never change it for the leads. Jimmy and Kim never softened on Howard, but we as viewers softened on him. Like in the first season, we saw that he was, that Chuck was the real, the real bad guy of that group. As far as like working against Jimmy or denying Jimmy access. Howard was the fall guy for a lot of the stuff that Chuck was right. doing to Jimmy and sometimes Kim. He was the guy who was the, you know, the loyal friend to Chuck. I don't know if you have any Howard moments on your list, uh, because if not, I guess this would be a good time to talk about a couple of also ran Howard moments that I think are worth. Mentioning. Yeah, actually, um, I, I don't have any specific Howard moments. So go ahead and, and hit yours. There's a scene in um, uh, uh, season three, the last episode, the same episode where Chuck is like forced out of HHM and goes home and, you know, kicks the kicks the lantern off the desk and ends up causing his demise. Howard kind of fires Chuck in a way. He buys him out mm. of the firm with his own. Yes, money. yes. And, and, and Chuck's trying to go back and forth with them. Like this is like a little legal game that they're in because what happens is when Jimmy pulls that move at the insurance company and gets the malpractice insurance of Chuck's like tells him what's up with Chuck, that he's got this condition and all that. Um, and they get investigated and then they, they withdraw his malpractice insurance. When Howard hears that, he kind of suggests like, Hey, you know, man, a cushy retirement, you could go into academia. You'd be the most respected guy in the world. You could start writing about all those things you want to write about. Right. And, and Chuck, Chuck's response is to take up against the firm. Yeah. Uh, and then next time they see each other, Howard says that's bullshit. 17 years. 18 in July, actually. All those years, we built this place together. And all that time, I've supported you. Looked up to you. Deferred to you. Because I always thought you had the best interest of the firm in mind. I have. Mm. You did. For a long time. But you've let personal vendettas turn your focus away from what's best for HHM. You've put your needs first to our detriment. I don't think that's accurate. And the moment that I mildly suggest with empathy and concern that maybe it's time for you to consider retirement. The first instinct you have is to sue me? To sue the firm? Well, I, I, I don't even know. In what world is that anything but the deepest betrayal of everything we worked so hard to accomplish? In what world is that anything but the deepest betrayal of our friendship? Howard, I could argue that you're the one who betrayed me. That's bullshit. And you know it. Howard's friendship kind of protected Chuck in a way that Chuck never realized. Mm -hmm. And by the time it was done, it was, it's just a great moment for Howard, even though he's, he doesn't know that this all happened because of Jimmy's shenanigans, you know, and so much of Chuck's humiliation, it feels tragic because it didn't have to happen that way. But Chuck, that was a, you know, a, a very disloyal move that he had against Hamlin, who has been carrying water for Chuck for the entire series up to this mm -hmm. point. So I feel like that's a great Howard moment. And I also think, and I had almost forgotten this, but my, my wife chimed in earlier today and she just said, you can't forget him and Jimmy fighting in the gym oh, that's such a great, in the last season. So great. <laughs> because what I love about it is it's middle-aged guys fighting and Howard is, uh, he's not like an awesome badass in the ring. He's just a bit more fit and a little bigger than Jimmy. Right. And so he kind of cleans Jimmy's clock, yeah. but they're both huffing and puffing and landing some shots and not all of them. But, um... No, Jimmy had that coming. And so in a weird way, if you look back on that, that's like, it's the writers giving giving Howard this little moment of like, if it came down to it, motherfucker, 
I could kick your ass. Like, don't forget who you're dealing with, even though that's sort of an empty gesture. And it turns out it was something Jimmy was willing to go through with just because they knew they had this broader, that, that Howard was falling hook, line and sinker for their scheme. Mm-hmm. Um, but I still think it's a great moment just because it does, it's like a different version of him telling them off in the apartment. It's, it's like, it's just a moment where, where Howard gets to remind Jimmy, like, it's not just your little world of schemes that exist. There's people out here and sometimes you're just going to take one to the jaw, you know, <laughs> because of who you are. Jimmy didn't realize maybe how much Howard was being nice to him. And I don't think he ever quite realized that that Howard had sincerity in his his whole Charlie Hustle thing, you know, that that he really did see Jimmy in a different way than anyone thought. And it was really Chuck that was forcing that issue of Jimmy not being welcome at the firm and that kind of stuff. Yeah. And, and, and that was something when I was rewatching a lot of episodes recently, um, it, 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 it had me fooled too. Um, I found that Howard was a more sympathetic character than I remembered. And I found that Chuck was a lot less sympathetic than I remembered. And that's not to say that both of them didn't get, you know, screwed over in different ways by Jimmy, but you know, Chuck was a real bastard. Um, you know, a lot of times, especially to Jimmy, especially to Jimmy. Um, and, and, and it just goes, it goes back to, uh, you were mentioning people that were trying to tell the truth about Jimmy looking like they were crazy. Um, n- not on my top five list necessarily, but the scene when they're in court and Chuck is explaining all the chicane, was it chicanery that he used that was going on? Yeah. Um, and he really seems unhinged. And at the same time, everything he's saying is true. Right. I am not crazy. I know he swapped those numbers. I knew it was 1216. One after Magna Carta, as if I could ever make such a mistake. Never. Never. I just, I just couldn't prove it. He, he covered his tracks. He got that idiot at the copy shop to lie for him. Mr. McGill, please, you don't have to go. You think in. this is something? You think this is bad? This, this chicanery? He's done worse. That's Billboard. Are you telling me that a man just happens to fall like that? No, he orchestrated it. Jimmy. He defecated through a sunroof. And I saved him. I shouldn't have. I took him into my own firm. What was I thinking? He'll never change. He'll never change ever since he was nine. Always the same. Couldn't keep his hands out of the cash drawer. But not our Jimmy. Couldn't be precious Jimmy. Stealing them blind. And he gets to be a lawyer? What a sick joke. I should have stopped him when I had the chance. But but that's a great acting moment for Michael McKean and a great like somebody character-wise being sucked into the into Jimmy's you know black hole you know situation. Um, and 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 but 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 yeah, I, I I felt I felt a little guilty when I was doing the rewatch and I was like, oh yeah, I was too hard on Howard. I should have been nicer to him. You know. <laughs> well, it's kind of what the show wants you to feel because the, the Jimmy and Kim were the same way. But that, but yeah yeah we, we get we get into. We get into Jimmy's and Kim's headspace, you know, and 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 you know, we're we're sympathizing with them to the point where we're we're having their same biases and their same prejudices, you know. Well, I mean, the flip of that that I was getting to earlier too, of the someone looking deranged while telling the truth. The the flip of that that the show does is someone seeming righteous while protecting a lie or a scheme. Like when Kim tells Lalo off, she's not telling the truth. What that's not what happened. In fairness, she in fairness, she's just kind of bull she doesn't even know the real truth at that point, right? But she's just bullshitting. Right. But we know that her righteous moment is not accurate. And I would say it, it's also Howard, you know, when he buys Chuck out, he's right about Chuck's disloyalty to him and the firm. Yeah. But his premise if he knew that Jimmy was responsible for the malpractice insurance being pulled, he might have a different feeling about that situation, mm-hmm. you know? Mm-hmm. 
Um, it still is a Chuck's ego about not not seeing the exit door or the exit sign as was in that, <laughs> the courtroom scene. Um, like I don't know that, that like that he is like unwilling to realize that maybe somewhere in all of this you should recognize that your condition makes you a liability to try to continue the sort of career that you've had. But going forward, you know, which was what Howard's trying to tell him, you could have a cushy, respected existence. Mm -hmm. um, there's no reason to think this is like a defeat. So yeah, but it's like that whole thing of like someone, oh my gosh, I love the righteous fury of this character. And then you step back and you go, but what they're defend, they're, they're doing this because they don't want their scheme to blow up if it's Jimmy or Kim. Right. Or they're saying this, uh, they don't know the truth about what's happening. Like there've been a few times on the show where Kim kind of defends Jimmy without really ever having like vouched for what he's doing at that moment. But she's more offended at the person that just, that just tried to talk to her about Jimmy. Like she really doesn't like it when someone tries to caution her against something, you know? Mm -hmm. And I think like Jimmy, she hates it when someone tries to say, are you sure about this guy? Like, that's a great way to get her to be like, you know, like to the kind of, I don't know, it's part of that relationship between the two of them is that she doesn't like, she might, you know, behind closed doors want to tell Jimmy, what the hell are you doing? But she doesn't want the world to say that to Jimmy. And she doesn't want to be one of the people out in the world you know, talking about Jimmy that way. Whereas Howard's a little bit more, a little bit more gimlet eyed, like, but he still is swept up in it at times. Like the, the brothers McGill, the two of them, like that, that scene with, with Chuck, I feel like that's where Howard is like, he's had it up to here with these brothers McGill. <laughs> talking about the brothers McGill. Um, one of the other things uh, that, that, and maybe this is just true of all good drama, but I always felt like that Saul is really good with left turns. Like you think one thing's gonna happen and then something, you know, a small example of it was in, there was a late series episode, one of the black and white ones where Jimmy's accomplice is waiting in the taxi cab and the cops are behind him and he gets all nervous and he's about to, he's about to make his, he's about to make his escape in the taxi. And you think, um, you think, oh, we're gonna have a car chase now, and then he just runs straight into another car, and it's over just like that, you know? Yeah. I thought that was a fun left turn. Yeah. But um, the one that I had on my list was um, when um, Chuck and Jimmy are, um, uh, they're, they're, Jimmy finds out there's a tape of him admitting uh, his one of his schemes to, to, to Chuck, and, and, and Chuck has hired a private investigator to like watch his place and to like, you know, we know that, that Jimmy's gonna break in in the night at some point and steal this thing and, and they're having this conversation. And Jimmy literally busts in the front door and and like, like there's no subterfuge at all or anything, you know? Yeah. And, and I don't know if Chuck fooled me or if I'd fooled myself into thinking that, yeah, Jimmy's, you know, I was thinking there's gonna, a whole, a whole scheme is gonna hatch, you know, a season long scheme is gonna hatch about getting this tape back. And, um, which is kind of where Chuck's, you know, thinking was. And then the, the writers just, you know, threw that all out the window and there's a great dramatic, you know, two minute scene where all that's blown away and, and, and everything is turned on its, on its head again.
like he's basically saying, I, I know I screwed you over, but this is so backhanded and, and, and sneaky what you're doing to me, even though it's the kind of thing Jimmy would do, but maybe not quite, I don't know. Um, it's such a tender thing between those brothers, but yeah, like he shows up when the investigator is there, and I believe Howard's there as well. But they're but they're off camera, right? So right. He, doesn't he doesn't see, see them. So, so yeah, so he he accidentally ends up confessing again with witnesses this time. Yeah, yeah. Are you happy now for what? For nothing. Is that all there is, Chuck? Is all the, all there is? How'd you make copies, huh, Chuck? Huh? You tell me or I'll burn this whole goddamn house to the ground! Jimmy! Jimmy! That's enough! You need to step away. Howard? You were a witness to what happened here? I was. To that point I was just saying about someone seeming righteous while they're protecting a lie or a scheme, that's a cathartic moment to see Jimmy. I mean, it's ugly, but it's cathartic to see him like actually say like, you're a shitty brother to Chuck. Like it's one of the few moments where he puts it so strongly. It's like, oh, this is what you do to me, you know? Exactly. I think the next beat we get in that story is like Jimmy's out front smoking a cigarette and, uh, and the cops are coming and Chuck's trying to do his whole Jimmy, I think in a way this really might be best for you. That's why I'm doing this, not to punish you, to show you, truly show you that you have to make a change before it's too late. And Jimmy basically says, you know, before you next time yourself, when you're shivering under your space blanket, there's going to be nobody here for you, you because change. you suck, you know? And then he puts out his cigarette path. and he says, there's my ride. Yeah. And he gets in the cop car ready, and it's it's one of the best music be cues they've ever done on the show. That path. Here's what's going to happen. One day you're going to get sick again. One of your employees is going to find you curled up in that space blanket, take you to the hospital, hook you up to those machines that beep and whir and hurt. And this time, it'll be too much. And you will die there, alone. Here's my ride. It's a great left turn uh, and also, yes, a great moment for Bob Odenkirk of just like, you kind of want to see him go after Chuck and say these things, but it's as is often the case, it's like, yeah, but not like this. This wasn't the way that it was supposed to happen. <laughs> well, my next pick is, is kind of the flip side of that in that it's a scene where the brothers are seemingly getting along, uh, even though some people differ on that. I'll get to that in a second. And also uh, my pick has another layer to it that I'll, I'll also get to in a second. But the scene in question is the opening teaser of the last episode of season four. It's uh, set on the day that Jimmy gains admission to the bar and uh, Chuck was there to vouch for him and is also there at the karaoke party. Um, 
that celebrates Jimmy. And, um, you know, we see that Chuck's kind of being a wallflower and he's about to leave and Jimmy doesn't want that. And so he gets up on stage and starts butchering the ABBA song, Winner Takes It All, as a way of kind of enticing Chuck to come up and sing with him. And Chuck takes the bait. And after passing the mic back and forth a few times, uh, uh, you know, Jimmy sort of lets Chuck take the mic, but Chuck definitely takes the mic and then kind of belts out the song. And it's a nice moment for them because you can see that Jimmy is kind of happy that he was able to to get Chuck up there. And uh, in fact, we see that later that night, uh, Chuck has helped a very drunk Jimmy get home and gets him to his bed. And rather than leaving, he kind of crashes on Jimmy's bed next to him. And the two guys, you know, sing the song softly into the night. So it's a nice moment. And I think how you feel about it depends on how you feel about Chuck and uh, how much you're thinking about the context of this scene. Because, um, you know, if you think Chuck's a narcissist who just can't let Jimmy have a moment, then you can read that moment where he takes the mic as like a real expression of his ego. But if you see it as Jimmy's goal was to get Chuck up there and out of his shell and enjoying himself, then, then it's actually kind of a very sweet moment. And I definitely adhere to the second interpretation. I'm not saying it's not complicated between Jimmy and Chuck, just that this scene is here to sort of give us a warm moment um, and provide a counterpoint to a scene later in the episode where in the present day of the plot line where Chuck's been dead for a while and Jimmy very cynically um, uses Chuck's memory uh, to get reinstated as a lawyer. I do remember the scene and um, I honestly don't remember my interpretation as of watching it, but I really like your interpretation and I'm really looking forward <laughs> you know, to rewatching it. It's a great scene. And, and actually, that's one of the reasons why I mentioned there's another layer. One of the reasons why I wanted to connect this scene to the greater conversation around the show, because every week the show was on, there was a show, uh, a podcast called uh, the Better Call Saul Insider Podcast, where the people who actually made the show were talking about it. But I thought it would be fun to include a clip of them. Uh, um, I put together a few little instances of them discussing this very thing, the aspect of Chuck's intentions and attitudes towards Jimmy in this teaser. And uh, it's just an indication of the kind of stuff they talked about on that uh, Better Call Saul Insider podcast. They actually went on at much greater length about the opening teaser scene, the karaoke scene, uh, including, you know, the links they had to go to to get the rights to the song and all that stuff. So I encourage you to check that podcast out. But here's just a little bit of them. You know, here's an indication of what we've been talking about. This whole thing of these these people are very thoughtful in how they approach this show. And you can see that the, the excellence of what they're doing really matters to them. And also they, like us, talk about these characters like they're real people. I, I, yeah, I, I love this teaser so much. I love the, the warmth uh, between these two. And it tells me, I don't think that Chuck is, I don't know what you think. I, I, he seems so, by the way, Michael McKeon, 
How how oh, fucking great is Michael Mc yeah, Bob and Bob together? Bob and and, and Michael together. Uh, there's just magic. I mean, the singing, the singing, and then of course that that brilliant scene where they bring Jimmy back to back home. But I don't think. Tell me what you think. Uh, you guys think. I don't think Chuck is insincere. I don't think he's he, he's thinking to himself, "I hate this guy." I think uh, I think it just he doesn't completely know himself. No, uh, I, I think Chuck had a good time despite himself. Yes. Obviously, he did yeah. because Definitely. he grabbed the mic and started singing. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> That's a wonderful moment. It's when such he takes a great it away moment. Completely. Yeah, yeah. And um, and also as as Catherine, our wonderful ADR supervisor, said. You got the lead singer of Spinal Tap to sing on your show, you guys. You did it. That is right. You did it. I don't know much about actors, uh, but one thing I do know is if they can sing, they like to sing. I think somewhere in there we had the, the just the thought. Why don't we do like the best moment between these two characters? What about the what's the what was the moment when they were the the closest and and when they were having the most fun together? And then I think we just had this image, and I, I and and of of, uh, of Jimmy. I think the idea of Jimmy singing and kind of luring Chuck up onto stage and kind of kind of kind of using social pressure a little bit but then chuck grabbing the mic and i i that was i think that was really that was as and i don't know that I, I i don't i think it was a little bit before the song came but then the idea then came well wait a minute what if we use what if we use this song and this this lyric and have a callback to this lyric later in the episode because it's so tricky this season because jimmy doesn't talk about what's going on with him because in a weird way he doesn't fully understand what's happening inside himself. So yeah, I, I think it was really, it really was nice kind of closing out the teaser, getting to see them actually have a warm, genuine connection That's really in a sweet. way that we have absolutely never seen. I mean, it, since they were kids, really, but little even, kids. I mean, even the flashback we saw when they were kids, Chuck had this really kind of chilly edge to him with yeah. Jimmy. Even though he was reading to him, you know, he was, it, there, there was an edge there that is not present in this scene and yeah. and it really is it's the nicest we've ever seen chuck be to jimmy yeah. chuck's okay when jimmy needs help when jimmy is a, a stumble bum and a loser and uh then chuck can feel superior and and uh yeah no it's just i, I tell you this 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 show could be taught in a, in a psych class uh, in college in university I, this thing is so complicated it is, it's a love that we just have you know that's that's long gone, and that we have not really seen. And I, I, I really and it helps understand what part of what is in the pit of Jimmy's stomach. There, yeah. there's right. something really good down there that he lost. If things could have gone a different direction, it, if it had just been you never really mattered all that much to me, it wouldn't. It would be much more understandable for him to do what he's doing. But knowing that he had, he did have this wonderful relationship at some point in time is so sad. Making America sad. That's what we do <laughs> in the world. The 
there was obviously a lot of love there. Um, you know, early in the show, when we start to understand, you know, Chuck's issues, um, Jimmy comes in with like the Financial Times, yeah. I think, and he's like, "Hey, I finally found, you know, the Financial Times. I only have to drive an extra three miles to get yeah. it or whatever." And that's, you know, I mean, regardless of what's going on with that relationship, I mean, that's a really sweet gesture, yeah. you know. Um, it, you can tell that Jimmy you know, cares about Chuck, he knows what Chuck likes, and he's willing to go out of his way to, to, to help Chuck out when he can in that situation. So it, it's, it's definitely not a, there, there's definitely flaws on both sides of the relationship and love on both sides of the relationship. Um, like I said, just in my rewatch, I was just surprised at that, I guess Chuck was giving as good as he got when it came to uh, animosity and acrimony. Right, right, right. <laughs> You don't have any easy feelings about it. Do you know what I mean? Like the show, the show knows yeah. they can give you a poignant moment. And that's by, like I said, listening to the creators talk, it seems pretty clear that they wanted you to see this as no, there was something worth salvaging, but they also know that they're leaving the door open for all these other ideas we have about the characters and that Jimmy's only way maybe of luring Chuck into sticking around was to give him a moment to shine, you know, um, I, whether mm -hmm. that's a comment on Chuck's ego or Jimmy's willingness to stand aside. Um, I don't think it's a negative experience for Jimmy in the scene. But if you look at the overarching story of that, you might say perhaps Chuck sitting off by himself and trying to sneak out the door at his brother's uh, soiree. Perhaps that was kind of crummy. Uh, but 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 now we have a term for that. It's called ghosting, and a lot of people do it. And it's almost like a way to save your your yourself, save your sanity in a social situation. Sometimes. So I don't know. I, I love that moment, and I also think that it makes the song that I already thought was kind of beautiful, the ABBA song uh, 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 "Winter Takes It All." Now I can't. That's another thing that I can't think of without thinking of. Oh, that's the that's the karaoke choice of the Brothers McGill, you know, <clears throat> and and lyrically the idea of who's the winner. Um, it even makes you think of that moment in Breaking Bad after killing Gus, when Walt very chillingly says to Skylar on the phone, I won. Um, it's like, do, we don't want these characters to, you know, them winning often means someone is losing hard. And I think that's, you know, something this show wants you to realize that between these two brothers, that, that spirit of competition was, was something that really, I don't know, really caused a lot of tragedy down the road. Yeah, yeah. Well, I don't know how many picks that is. Does that mean we're on our fourth picks? Does, is this about to be your fourth? I, I, I think I think we're on four. Yeah. Okay. Um, let's let's see what your next pick is. Yeah, I've got a I've got a couple more that that uh, that were that were high on the list for me. Um, so you know, I keep talking about kind of the meta aspects of the show and um and how how hard obviously the the creative team works on it. Um, I feel like that that a lot of the show is about the grind. It's about the nuts and bolts of of these these schemes and these plans and these these operations. You know whether it's the whether it's stuff that that Jimmy's concocting or whether it's stuff that you know um, that, that that Gus and and his guys are are, are working on. Um, the the episode where um, uh, where uh, Jimmy's it, and this one actually goes it actually spans a couple of episodes. Um, Jimmy's uh, buddy Huell is in trouble with the cops and Jimmy has this scheme that he's going to basically paint the cop as a alcoholic, you know, crazy person to, to get him off. Yeah. And then Kim comes up with this insane, bogus letter writing campaign. So um, at the end of one episode, she's at a stationary store, like filling up a cart with pens and letters and, you know, envelopes and, and, and cards. And then the next episode is Jimmy driving we, we find out cross country to Louisiana 
and he's paying the people on the bus to to write these fake letters in support of of of, of Huell, and they're going to turn him into this folk hero. And he's trying to get him to use less profanity and to make sure that they, you know, that they try to make it seem like different people. Yeah, yeah, you know, use different pens, and he's paying them like fifty cents per postcard and a dollar per letter. Yeah, and so it's this insane, it's this insane plan that that that. The, the creators of the show don't take any shortcuts. You know, they, they show us every little beat of, of, of this plan. And, and so, so we get to see how that all plays out. And, and of course it ends up working um, after it's all, and, and even, and then, and then they've got phone, they've got this bank of, of, of cell phones set up and Jimmy's people, we haven't talked about Jimmy's commercial filmmaking student friends that, that make his commercials with him. When you said there's so many things that happen again and again, it's hard to pick the best one for like a scene. The film crew was the first thing that came to my mind as like, oh, I love every interaction he had with them. It was always something different. It was this, if it, if this show was that case of the week, wacky shenanigans show they would be regular members of the cast you know what i mean because they are always he's paying them whatever he's paying them somehow they build into this character's a a clever observation of of indie filmmaking like somehow that these are the three perfect archetypes of and the way they work together and the way that like the Uh director's got these high-minded ideas but he's also clearly willing to do anything for a buck and then you've got the boom guy who's also the guy who runs and grabs the gear and he's like the pa almost or the grip of this thing and then you've got the makeup artist that is maybe the only one with uh, she's really sweet and she actually cares about jimmy at times but no i love their appearances and i agree that if i had to pick one like moment with them as much as they're great out in the field shooting something and having all this really kind of wink wink talk about film like jimmy is a guy who knows sh- knows his shit about film like when he's directing one of those spots his references and his terminology he's thought about it yeah check the gate <laughs> an early gag of the show was that jimmy was always making movie references and stuff too they kind of didn't do that as much as it went on but you always feel like he's a movie buff and he loves this but yeah oddly enough the scene i thought of too was like the scene in the office where they're kind of witnessing the wonder of jimmy doing this cajun uh Uh, minister on the phone but it's just such a great moment with them to realize it's not just when something needs to be filmed he just calls them when he needs some knuckleheads you know to to do what he needs them to do they're like his they're like his muscle you know yeah oh shit which one is it It, it's that one it's the church the church the church all right all right Hello there, Free Will Baptist, Pastor Hansford speaking. Uh, who this? Good afternoon, Pastor. My name is Suzanne Erickson. I'm an assistant district attorney from Albuquerque, New Mexico. Oh, that's a long way off, Cher. Uh... Can you hold on a second? Uh, Clarence is going at the organ. Just... I'm going to step into the vestibule. Oh, there we go. That scheme is brilliant when it un- unfolds, and it's like something out of a classic movie from the 40s or something, screwball dialogue, when the lawyers are calling the numbers and checking on it, because you can see that the prosecutor knows this is fishy. Like, she's, she doesn't really believe it, and the show brilliantly includes that scene, and this also feels, it's just, it really does feel like it's taken from the 40s, because I can remember the judge, he's like, these letters won't stop showing up to my office, and he says, I don't want a circus, you know? Exactly. And him saying that to the prosecutor is like, that is all you need. That's the setup for her going, I could, I could dig deeper into this, but this has become 
becoming way too much of a hassle for me, and I know the judge is not going to be happy with me if I keep if I make this more complicated. You know, exactly. So it's a brilliant scheme, and that scene with the film students, yes, is the ideal sort of payoff. Just watching Jimmy. Also, it's one of those things the show does where uh, Jimmy gets to do a little bit of sketch acting, or Bob, Oden, Bob Odenkirk gets to do a little bit of sketch acting. He gets to put on this this character. Oh, Jewel is this it's wonderful. It's kind of like man. bad sketch acting, like purposely bad sketch acting. Yeah, you know, because 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 we yeah. know that Jimmy's a, a, a confident director, but he's not much of an actor. Because <laughs> uh, some of the old folks around here, uh, they like to brush up on the Bible before uh, they go to sleep, you know. Get right in case the Lord call them home. Yes. And wouldn't you know it, there was a short circuit in the old coffee maker. The whole thing catch fire and the flame leaped up to the windowsill. Well, Hugh happened to be visiting his people and he saw the smoke. Well, what did he do? He burst right in and he carried out every last one of them oldsters. Oh, my goodness. And um, what happened to the church? The church is fine. I shudder to think what might have happened if God in his grace hadn't seen fit to send us old Hugh. It's a legitimately fun scheme yeah. because what they're trying to do is get Huel off for something he really shouldn't be sent away for. I mean, we know the circumstances of why he attacked the cop and it was it was not innocent, but yeah. it's part of this affection we have for Huel. So it's like, it's great to see that Jimmy actually does have a friend somewhere in this mix, someone he cares about. Um, and the actor, we should mention, the guy who plays Huel, like it's so great to see him pop up and he's got some really great moments uh, on this show. Um, one of my favorites is when he's in the car with Jimmy and, and he's saying to him, um, it's, it's actually part of the Howard thing. It's kind of the last thing we see he will do to help Jimmy. He, he lifts Howard's keys <sighs> That's off right. the valet yeah. guy. Uh, so they can duplicate the keys to, so that they can drive Howard's car in the scheme. You're talking about how granular they get with every step of these schemes. That like takes episodes to play out. But after after that happens and Huel's, I guess, getting paid by Jimmy or, you know, they're, they're wrapping up the job. Huel says, let me ask you a question. You're a lawyer. You make good money, right? Good days and bad, but yeah. Legit money on the level. Yeah, so? Your wife's a lawyer. A legit lawyer. Yeah. Why do you do all this? <laughs> it's just this perfect moment of like, couldn't you be, couldn't you be happy and successful without this crazy shit you're always bringing me into? You know the show. You were talking about the the, the first. Uh, the first little vignette you know even that is kind of about the grind it's like all these little specific details about you know making you know the cinnabons and opening the store for the day and i think that again there's a meta element there where it it shows you do you remember the scene where mike um somebody was mike somebody was tracking mike and he couldn't figure out how they were tracking him so he went to the junkyard and completely took the car apart um yeah so so they the filmmakers and Mike, the character, spend a lot of time visually, literally taking the car apart, you know. They could have easily, in one line of dialogue, said, um, Mike saying, yeah, I took the entire car apart and I couldn't find the bug, or yeah, I took the entire car apart and I found the bug in the gas cap or whatever. But they would rather 
they would rather show the 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 work that goes into that you know and that means as filmmakers they have to do the work to show the work there's one great scene in that one where the camera all of a sudden is up like 200 feet which kind of gives you the impression that 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 mike feels like somebody's looking at him that he can't understand or he can't see you know um yeah and and yeah and again there there's they could have done that with a lot less effort you know on their part and the actor's part but they took the time to they took the time to put you in mike's headspace and let you experience what he was having to experience when he did all that stuff you know and and that just happens you know so many times when when you know, we're talking about jimmy in the copy shop cutting literally cutting and pasting you know the letters to, to to do that scam against chuck you know there's so many of these great montages that really get into the nuts and bolts and the specifics of how these things are working and i just feel like that's something that that was kind of a a, a, a saw thing that we don't I don't feel like I get that in most most shows. Like it's the kind of thing that most shows seem to gloss over, but I think it's so interesting and 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 a, and and, a, and, a, and again, it's a way to, to tell a story visually. Every time they did a montage, it was a different style of montage, different technical challenge for a different narrative reason. But they were such experts and, and so brilliant at montage, you know, mm -hmm. and like giving us that 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 series of shots that tells a story in a truncated way or uh, um, just a moment that gives us that feeling of of like. Oh, there's a cinematic excitement in the in the conceiving of this that like this like you said this could have been mentioned in a line but they know there's there's joy in seeing how they're going to do it from just almost like an imagery standpoint but also maybe seeing mike spending time with mike in that moment is like oh we don't normally get to see mike uh unravel like this you know this is kind of <laughs> him having a uh, like a, a moment in the conversation where the guy's ripping up his apartment sort of thing. Like there's a little bit of that in Mike of he's going to keep digging till he finds the answer. And, you know, the answer is in the gas cap, um, which then becomes a little runner on the show that different, you know, different times that the, the tracker in the gas cap is used. Mm -hmm. So, um, yeah, no great stuff. And it's making me think about the fact that I don't think we've talked about like a, a key Mike moment, um, in the show, so uh, I, I don't know um, is, do, anything else about the 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 Huel scheme episode about your pick before we move on. Uh, nothing about that. Do you, do you have a mic moment coming up? It's hard to pick a moment, maybe. But when I thought about if I was going to isolate something, I love the potency and the sadness of in season one. It's the the sixth episode. It's called Five O. Um, I'll just say one line. The episode is written by Gordon Smith and directed by Adam Bernstein. Um, I broke my boy. When Mike says that, yeah, I mean, that's it's like it's the perfect capper to the story we've just gotten that fills in the details of Mike's past. The fact that, I mean, again, it puts him in that hard-nosed crime drama air where it's like, oh, yeah, Mike is a guy we like. He's got a weird kind of code. He's super competent. He's almost like Walter White in some ways, the way that he knows everything about everything. Like he know, has a lot of knowledge about the way things work. He's going to think through something really clever. Gus trusts him because of how methodical he is. That's like Mike all over. But his backstory is so messy and so ugly and it hinges on him being a like almost like that lowest of all things a corrupt cop you mm -hmm. know what i mean like and the fact that we know he regrets that and even in that last scene with him we get in the show where jimmy asks him about where would you go with the time machine we see mike first names the date that his son was killed that he'd go back 
And then he quickly changes his mind and says, no, I'd go back to this other date. And that's the date he took his first bribe. Mm -hmm. Um, I just find that so sad. And so it like, it ties back into that whole thing of like his son, Mike knew that his son was like running up against the, like it was a bunch of corrupt cops and his son was marked because he wasn't on the take. And it was dangerous to be a cop who's not on the take. If everyone else is on the take, you know, they're worried that you're going to rat him out to internal affairs. And he advised his son to, to pretend to be, to pay, take the kickback and just keep his mouth shut. And his son did that. And they still didn't trust him. And so they killed him, you know? And so when he says, I broke my boy, it's like, that's, he, he advised his son to be corrupt because the system is too hard to beat, you know? Um, I just find that super sad. Also that episode 5.0, it's a great like noirish story where we get to see Mike, you know, we get to see the flashback where he kind of got revenge for the guys who, um, who killed his son. And also, uh, it sets up his arrival in Albuquerque, like why he shows up. We'd, we'd seen in the opener of this, he shows up at the bus station or at the train station with like a gunshot wound that he's dressing. Um, uh, uh, and it's like, we now understand that that's an injury he got in back East before he got revenge and left town. So him coming to Albuquerque is on the heels of getting vengeance for his son's death. And the story they paint about before that, where he's kind of this, he's hanging around the cop bar and everybody knows that he's the guy whose son got killed. And he's like old Mike at the bar getting too drunk. But mm -hmm. we see that the whole time he's actually kind of casing the place and like watching the guys who are responsible for his son's death. And he even gets them to think they're taking him out to the middle of nowhere uh, to shoot him. But what they don't know is before he went into the bar, he secreted a gun in their in the back seat of their cop car. So when they put him back there, you know, when he gets out, he's packing. I don't know. It's just, it's a great Mike scene for the cleverness, but the tragedy of it. And it just feels like this could be the basis of like a great movie. You know, like you wouldn't even need all the trappings of this show or Breaking Bad to make this character compelling. This idea of a retired corrupt cop who's trying to avenge the death of his son, the good cop, you know, like mm -hmm. that sounds, that's enough right there. And it's just one episode of this show. And I, at the time, I was still more interested in Jimmy and his, his chicanery, but I remember a lot of viewers, it almost seems like that episode split the show of people who were more interested in what Mike was doing than they were in what Jimmy was doing. Um, and I think I always was on Jimmy's side of that, but I do agree when you go back and watch, you go, okay, if you, if you came to this show as a Breaking Bad fan, that storyline of Mike's was like a huge gift to say, okay, he's, he's kind of continuing the hard world crime part of this story while Jimmy's off, you know, um, you know, doing like trying not to like early in the show, Jimmy didn't want to be part of this underworld. So anyway, so that, that that's my Mike pick. But I mean, obviously you could pick a number of great scenes throughout the show where he's, he's there when Jimmy says, I mean, there's great interactions with Jimmy. There's great stuff with Gus. All that is, is fantastic. Even his few scenes with Kim, you see like the power of Jonathan Banks as that character. It's fun to watch him interact with people. Yeah. Yeah. Um, there was a meme going around that was written in Mike's voice and, and, and the meme would always start out. So here's what you're going to do. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and of course it would turn, it was a meme. So it turned into something silly. The, the one scene of his, um, and it's kind of tied into the one you're talking about. Um, it was season five, episode three. Um, it just kind of points to Mike's efficiency and, and kind of brutality when necessary. Um, he was at the bar getting drunk. I think he was thinking back about, you know, he was still thinking back about his son and everything. Mm -hmm. 
and he's walking home and these guys start following him and they're kind of taunting him. Oh, yes. And he just grabs one of them and breaks the guy's arm and looks at the rest of them and is like, you guys really want to do this right now? And then they all scatter, of course. It's uh, what you, you nailed it, except what Mike says to the other guys, like when the one guy comes up on him, he grabs him, he twists his arm, he gets got him down on the ground. He's got like his foot down on the guy and he's holding his arm twisted. And he turns and what he says to the other guys is, so? <laughs> So I, I overrode it. <laughs> no, but it's like in your mind, he does say all that. But yeah. what he actually says is so. And this is an old dude who's like half drunk, you know, and these are young, like, you know, tough guys. And he immediately puts them in his pl in their place. It's like a one minute scene, you know, and it's just it's just a perfect mic scene, even though he doesn't really get to say much. You know, it, it just it just shows what a what a um a you know, what a, a, an opponent that he can be, you know, if he, he's, he's, it shows you that he's not a guy that you want to mess with. I feel like Mike's that guy. Like he doesn't go into a situation if he doesn't know what, what he needs to know about it. And because of that, he's always very assured. You know what I mean? What he wants to do. He knows what he expects to get out of it. He knows what you agreed to. He knows what you owe him. He knows what the job is. He even says that to Jimmy in one of my scenes that almost made this list. It's at the end of season one, when Jimmy's kind of going through this moment of, I can't believe we just went through all this yeah. and I didn't end up with anything. And he says, did we actually have like a million and a half sitting on my desk and we turned it in? And Mike says, yeah. And Jimmy's <laughs> like, why did we do that? Well, that was quick. No charge. Help me out here. Did I dream it? Or did I have $1,600,000 on my desk in cash? When I close my eyes, I can still see it burned into my retinas like I was staring into the sun. No one on God's green earth knew we had it. We could have split it 50-50. We could have gone home with $800,000 each, tax-free. Your point being? Why didn't we? What stopped us? I remember you saying something about doing the right thing. I don't even know what that means. You want to know why I didn't take that money? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, that's what I'm asking. Me personally, I was hired to do a job. I did it. It's as far as it goes. Yeah. Well, I know what stopped me. And you know what? It's never stopping me again. <laughs> And that's how they end season one, you know? And the fact that it still takes them like four more seasons to get him to the point where he's basically Saul is a testament to that granular storytelling we've been talking about. But I love that moment between the two of them because it really does define like the reason Mike isn't just, I mean, later he is sitting on a lot of money, but the reason he isn't just sitting on top of one of these empires or this thing is because he's a guy who kind of takes the job. He kind of, you pay him to do the job and he takes the job. He's not a crime lord. He, he is kind of in, a genius, but he's not the kind of Walter White Heisenberg or Gus Fring, Los Poyos Hermanos. You know, I mean, he's not that kind of thinker, but he is so competent and so prepared. Um, honestly, what an interesting character when you really think about the totality of Mike and what we know about him. And that in the end, he's basically the, the best, smartest muscle for a drug lord. You know, like he's a great guy. We love him. He's got all this integrity, but really what he amounts to is nothing great. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And 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 there's a there's a there's a heartbreaking scene. Um am I remembering right? I haven't rewatched this one lately, but uh the guy that's helping the guy that's engineering Fring's underground uh you know, what you call it? Werner. Yeah, he gets out of line and Mike has to assassinate him or not assassinate him, sorry, execute him. I mean, that's just that's just ugly. Yeah. You know, there's no you know, that's the job, but that's a really shitty job at that point for Mike. Right. And it's like a testament to what I just said that like 
as much as we like to admire his personal code, in this moment, he's working for Gus. Mm -hmm. Like he could spring a scheme and maybe help to help Werner to escape. Although I think once Werner's wife is in play, Mike knows that the wife is headed to this resort. She's in danger. Mm -hmm. He's doing what he can to save the wife. Mm -hmm. But he also like has given Werner this long leash and he really regrets it because he does like the guy. Mm -hmm. And that also just one of the most heart heartbreaking little moments where Werner is like, he recognizes that he's going to die. Um, but before that, Michael says, what did you think was going to, what did you think was going to happen? You know, <laughs> and, and Werner says, I thought that my, fr I thought that I would get caught and I would come back and finish my work. And he's somewhere in there. He says, and that my friend Michael would be very mad at me. And it just breaks your heart that Werner is like realizing, even now realizing that this is not a situation where you can dick around and be forgiven. Mm -hmm. And then when he realizes he's going to die, he says, you know, the stars are so beautiful here. I think I might walk out uh, a little further so I can see them better. Like he, he wants Mike to shoot him in the back of the head when he's not staring him in the eye. Mm -hmm. And maybe even for Mike's sake, he mm -hmm. recognizes like, maybe this will be easier for you mm -hmm. if I, if I just, cause I, I see now what's happening. You know, you weren't really my friend. It's kind of what he's thinking, but he doesn't want to die with a gun in his face. He wants to be up looking at the stars, you know, which is like, oh my God, what a, what a, like you really felt bad for Werner. And I, and because of what you said, like, it is true that Mike kind of goes down a rung in a way because he, he, he did that for Gus. Like he did that to protect the secrecy of the super lab. You know, it's like mm -hmm. this, this man died because of who you work for. Um, that's a real testament to where Mike is as a person. Like, as much as we admire him, he is a gun for hire in some ways. Anything else on Mike, or are we back to my last pick? Or... Do you have any nacho moments that you want to mention? You know, it's funny you should say that. So um, one of the one of the many things that I like about the show is is just the the sheer visual storytelling prowess that is on display from the the directors and the and the editors every week, and. Um, and, and, and one of my favorite scenes from the show is uh, season two episode, season six, episode two, the shootout with Nacho. You remember the brother, he's at the hotel and the brothers are coming for him. And I actually, yeah. I actually wrote out and I'm not going to go through it all, but I wrote out like the entire breakdown of the scene. It starts with the tracking shot of, of Nacho walking to the truck. And then he, he tucks a second gun into his waistband and then there's a reverse and he enters the truck and he's looking for the keys and he can't find the key. I mean, like I said, I won't go through all the shots, but it's just this, it's, it's a really good action scene and the visual, the visual clarity and conciseness that they tell the story with is just, it's just, it's just, it would, it would be exciting. Um, it would be exciting just from a character standpoint, because, you know, we like Nacho, even though <laughs> Nacho is one of those criminals that we like, even though he's a criminal and, um, right. and he, who has his own kind of code and he has his own baggage, you know, with his dad and everything getting, getting wrapped up in his affairs. But, um, but I love that. I love that action scene, um, for just, just for the sheer, you know, the, the sheer visual storytelling on display. No, I love that. They gave Nacho a couple of those moments where he got to be the action part of the story. Like Mike got to be that sometimes. Mm -hmm. The visual staging of the where the hotel is and where's the where's the kind of exit and here's here's uh, the Salamancas coming in. At this point, he's basically been set up by Gus. Like the, the, they want him to stay in this place where he can be found mm -hmm. because the trail to this place is being laid out uh for the salamancas you know so it's like i don't know there's there's it's like nacho's doomed it's like you can feel the 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 world closing in around him also all the through that episode the way he's figuring out what's going on there's this move where he catches the gunman who won't tell him who he works for and then he gets on the phone with gus and calls mm -hmm. gus and says uh I'm, I'm get that's it i'm getting out of here and then he just waits and then that guy's phone rings and so he knows, <laughs> i mean it's like it's one of those great instances of nacho being smart 
Um, so yeah, I love that that scene, that episode, that story for Nacho. I, I guess my Nacho moment is actually kind of doubling up on that, which is, um, I mean, you were saying before about how like the left turn of, oh, we Ch Chuck's got this tape and Jimmy's going to do something about it. What's he going to do? Mm -hmm. And he, the most blunt force thing mm -hmm. happens in the story. Um, I think Nacho's end is a kind of a, uh, a variation of that idea that like, you think this show's setting up the last minute swerve. You think they're setting up a plan. There's an escape. You can outsmart this. But it really is not that. It's like what seems to be happening is happening. Nacho knows that the only way to protect his dad mm -hmm. is to extract a promise from Mike that I'm not going to let anything happen to your dad. Um, but in order for that to be true, once again, Mike is working for Gus. I mean, like he's not he's doing that for Nacho, but he's also doing a lot for Gus here. Um, the way that Nacho is brought in and even beaten so that he looks like he doesn't have a deal mm -hmm. with Gus and Mike. Um uh, the actor talks about how this his last meal that he requested that it be something that he eats with a knife and fork because it's like a Last Supper kind of reference. But in his mind, he wanted Nacho to savor his last meal. Um, even his baptism in the oil puddle in the mm -hmm. the tanker that he hides in. That's such a great scene. But it's a story that's handled with so much like beauty and delicacy and respect for this character who, whatever you think of him, he was always on the edge of these scenes being manipulated by these bigger assholes, you mm -hmm. know? And so for me, the fact that he gets to go out on his own terms, you know, maybe not totally on his own terms, but once he realizes that his dad will never run away with him, he doesn't really want to run away without his dad. His dad won't, won't even love him fully unless he thinks Nacho is taking responsibility, kind of doing what Jimmy does at the end of the show, like actually turning himself in to some extent. Um, I don't know. I think that Nacho's choice to go out the way he does is powerful and sad, and I love that he gets this avenging angel monologue before he goes out to all these men who we know are dead. Like, even though it takes a little time, mm -hmm. every one of those men that he's talking to does die uh, because of the situation they're in. And when he ends up saying to Hector, like, I'm the one that did this to you. So every day when you're sitting there and you're, you're, you're hating your life, um, you think of me. <laughs> it's just this, like, it's a great moment. And it's like, as much as you're sad that Nacho didn't escape or go the distance, it's like, it's paying off that idea that in this show, there aren't, there isn't an escape for someone like Nacho. What a joke. Alvarez has been paying me for years, years, but you know what? I would have done it for free because I hate every last one of you cycle sacks of shit. I opened Lalo's gate and I would do it again and I'm glad what they did to him. He's a soulless pig and I wish I killed him with my own hands. And you know what else, Hector? I put you in that chair. Oh yeah, your heart meds. I switched them for sugar pills. You were dead and buried, and I had to watch this asshole bring you back. So when you are sitting in your shitty nursing home, and you're sucking down on your jello night after night for the rest of your life, you think of me, you twisted fuck. Let's do you. There is a moment where you think maybe he could get out, but it's his dad, his love for his dad. And, you know, it is a little Jesus-y the way that that becomes the way that he accepts this awful fate. And, you know, the, if the Salamancas catch him, they're going to torture him. And he knows that. So it seems like the plan might be, we don't really know what the plan is, but it does seem like Mike is advising him, whatever you do, do something that gets you killed. 
in this moment, like rush at them, you know, like you're supposed to do this thing. But the fact that Nacho is able to cut his zip tie because he has the piece of glass that was in the trash can because Gus was rattled and broke the glass. Mm-hmm. I mean, all that, it's like, it's that show's brilliant cause and effect thing mm-hmm. that just, this, this moment could have only happened this way because of what different people have done. And it gave Nacho this way out in the sense of he's not in the Salamanca's hands being tortured. Uh, he's actually, you know, he takes himself out. Um, and the only thing I still wonder is it, when it cuts to Mike and he's watching the scene through the scope, at one point he says, do it. And you don't know at that moment what he means. And we still don't know quite, does he mean do the thing that's going to get you killed quick? Or does he mean take out as many of them as you can? You know what I mean? Like, right. we don't know what Mike is thinking. Because Mike, it seems like, could get off a few shots and and change the situation for Nacho pretty quick. So I love the, I think Mike is saying, do the thing that we agreed, do the thing that gets you killed easy. Um, uh, but you don't, you'll never know, you know? And I think that the fact that Nacho kind of does that on his own volition, it's like, he's yes, he's doomed. Yes, he's got no escape, but they still give him this great exit. That reminds me of the way Howard goes out of like telling the people that have heard him off mm-hmm. before he goes out, you know? But with Nacho, it's obviously even a bullet to the head, very similar, but with Nacho, it's a like a different, a different way of looking at that moment that like for him, this might be the most graceful exit he can make. And that's tragic for a guy who we've kind of liked. And even though our reasons for liking Nacho are not, there's not that many reasons to admire the guy, (laughs) you know, but, um, but yeah, I'm glad we talked a little bit about him because I do think he's one of those characters that is, you know, in some ways the heart of the show, uh, because of how raw his, his experiences were throughout. Like he was never, he was never not being pushed around or being told you got to do this. I mean, he had his little side hustles, um, but it was, it was always, it was always like when you see it now, it's like, Oh yeah, there's a tragedy waiting to waiting to be had with this guy, you know, from the beginning. Um, so is that your final pick or do you have one more? Yeah, that was that, like, like I said, I think I had done, um, I, I think that was five for me. And that was, that was kind of my, and, and, you know, it's really so hard to, like I like I'd said, you know, there's so many great moments in the show. I don't know if those are literally the best five, but I thought they were five that kind of encapsulated five different things that I really love about the show, you know. Well, I guess I'll tag this list with the scene that I think is maybe the best scene on the show and maybe my favorite piece of filmmaking ever, or at least it's right up there. And it's the uh, montage at the beginning of the episode is um, something stupid from episode uh, episode seven from season four. And it's the montage that takes Jimmy and Kim through like nine months of storytelling because Kim's got the broken arm and Jimmy's not able to practice law for another like nine or 10 months. And they split screen, starting with them like brushing their teeth at the same time. The tooth, I always think about the toothbrushes. <laughs> And it's like, but throughout you see that now they're brushing their teeth at different times. Now they're not eating lunch together. Now they're not eating dinner together. She's staying late in the office working on Mesa Verde. He's at home eating cereal at the bar by at their little kitchen bar. Um, she's getting her name engraved on her wall plate at Schweikert and uh, Coakley, I think was the name of that uh, place. And um, Jimmy's getting his little cards that say need a call ask Saul or whatever because he's starting his his selling of burner phones scam you know you see her meeting with like clients you see Jimmy one of my favorite images maybe my favorite I just love this for some reason it says so much to me is Huel coming back with their lunch and it's raining and they're sitting in the back of a van with the doors open Mm -hmm. and I'm like you could have roughly that same shot in any movie from like 1930 onward Mm -hmm. two guys 
sitting in a, like a shitty, the back of a van or a truck or a train car or anything. And they're kind of looking at the rain and it's a little bit like, we'll go back to running our schemes the second this rain is up. But right now we're taking a lunch break and it's like the two guys, they're not saying anything. It just, it just hints at the camaraderie between them yeah. and the routineness of this thing that they're doing. Um, but I just think like if you watch that montage, uh, it, it uses the song Something Stupid, which is a great song, but like they got a new version commissioned to go exactly with this montage. And it, you know, it's like, it takes Jimmy to that point where he can now get his law license back. It mm -hmm. takes Kim to the point where she's now become Mesa Verde's like hero because she's opened all these branches. But like for a show that moves so slowly from day to day, from hour to hour, to give us nine months in a montage is like bold. And it's to your point earlier about the filmmaking and the, the way they put it together, it's also an incredibly well shot and emotional story about two people who are together, but life is pushing them apart. You know, their routines are pushing them apart. So I couldn't, I couldn't not mention that scene. And, and I'm, I'm always a sucker for, for good split screen, you know, A, and, and B, it, it, it goes back to my, my thing about the grind and how so much of the show is, you know, about so much of the show is about the, the, the detailed, um, you know, moment to moment things that make up a particular scheme or a particular plot. And in this case, it's kind of the opposite of that, where they're, they're instead of covering every moment, they're trying to cover some highlights to, 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 to cover a, a big, you know, stretch of ground like that. Um, and yeah. honestly, I've, as soon as you mentioned it, I remembered watching it when it aired but I don't think I've rewatched that one lately. So now I want to go back and I want to go back and you, you're reminding me of a lot that I haven't watched recently that I'm wanting to go back and rewatch. So, so uh, I'm, I've got plans for the rest of the weekend now <laughs> to, to rewatch all these great bits that I haven't seen lately, that I haven't seen lately. But, um, but yeah, that might be, um, if that's not the best, if that's not the best scene in the show, it's definitely a contender because it sums up so much of what, you know, we like about the, the, the show and the storytelling and the and the and, and the creative side of it and, and all that stuff absolutely and it's got that like I said the emotional undercurrent mm -hmm. the time is right your perfume fills my hair the stars get red and all the nights so blue and then I go and spoil it all by saying something stupid like I love you Well, there was no way this was going to be a short conversation, but still we went longer than I thought we would. And we didn't even get to several of the uh, themes or techniques or motifs. There's that word again that I thought we might get to. I'll just rattle some of these off. Finger guns, um, uh, Jimmy's willingness to be the bad guy, Victor and Giselle sharing a smoke. And uh, here's one that, uh, you know, corner me at a party. And if I'm drunk, I'll share with you my, my conspiracy theory about the JFK half dollar motif. Um, but that didn't make it into the podcast. And let's see what else. Oh, um, all the great comedy guest stars that the show has had on over the years. There's lots of people in small roles that are, are great comedy actors, not just big roles like Michael McKeon and, and Bob Odenkirk but, uh, and Carol Burnett, but there's others too. But um, the one that I did want to zero in on, just because I think it's such an interesting way to tie this show up because it ties up the rest of the show is this whole idea as part of Mike's code, this idea of being in the game. 
um, is just something that came up on the show a lot. And when we talk about Nacho's death, it's like Nacho dies the way he does because he's in the game. Mike's whole philosophy about if you're in the game, I'll take you out. If not, I'll try not to, you know, I mean, that that's like a, a thing that comes up. Uh, Jimmy trying to keep Kim out of the game. When Jimmy's talking to Jeffy out in the uh, behind uh, Marion's house, he says, you want what everybody wants. You want to be in the game. Um, early in the show, Nacho says to Jimmy, after Jimmy says he doesn't want his business, Nacho says, will you give me a call once you figure out you're in the game? You know, <laughs> all of this notion, and it really paid off in that final scene of Jimmy in the courtroom saying, uh, you know, it's it's a it's like a weird moment of him being a badass amidst that sort of heartfelt confession he has. There's a moment where he says, Walter White wouldn't have been able to do what he did if it wasn't for me. And then he turns to the prosecutor and looks at him and says, you got that? <laughs> <laughs> so it's like, even when he's taking up the consequences of what he's done, he's also like ending on that note of sort of like, but don't, don't anybody miss what happened here. Don't anybody miss, you know, what I did. Uh, that's that whole notion. I don't know. I just didn't. I, I think that's an interesting place that the show sort of took it was that like, if we're looking at what Jimmy's fate is, his willingness to be in the game, his like knowing he was in the game and keeping going. It's it's the reason why this show ends on that note of, of consequences rather than escape and why it feels so true. And so much of what we've just said about the story from the show all these years has been that they've they've always been telling us that they've always been showing us the moral dubiousness of what Jimmy's up to and maybe making us crave on some level where whether we knew it or not for him to stop you know for him to not keep this this up the chicanery um so i don't know if you have anything to say about just that notion of being in the game and and like what that means to the show in the larger sense that like it really is a question of are you in the game or are you not and if you are then there's a, a different sort of fate waiting for you yeah, well, I think it goes back to the great line from from Huell where he's asking Jimmy, like, why are you doing all this? Yeah, there's there's another great bit um, when Chuck is going on a rant that seems crazy and unhinged, but is actually accurate about the stuff that Jimmy's been doing to him. Um, he says um, he says, you know. Say what you you know. You can say plenty of bad things about Jimmy, but don't say that he's lazy. You know because he's he's he is a hard worker. You know, and it's 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 funny and and interesting, and it's what makes the character that that um, you know Jimmy could like I said he probably could have been a film director or at least a commercial director. Yeah, <laughs> but instead he chose to he chose to go down this road that was um, that was like. Would it have been more work in the, at the end of the day to just have been a good lawyer? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> I think it might have been less work, but there was something there was something about the game that was irresistible to Jimmy. I think that's a I think that's a um, I hadn't thought about that before, but but yeah, for whatever reason, um, you know, that was that was the the life that that you know, in one sense he fell into it, but in another sense he was kind of compelled. You know, there was something about his personality that made him want to be part of the game. Um, and, and yeah, that's, that's what the show's about, right? And he held on to it so late in his story that even when he was Gene and he was on that phone call with Kim in that episode in the phone booth, when she says, what are you doing or how are you doing or whatever she asked him? And he says, oh, you know, still getting away with it. And, but he's kind of <laughs> bragging. And it's like, as viewers, you're going, please tell me that's not how you feel at this moment when you're hiding out as a Cinnabon manager. And working at the Cinnabon. Right. Yeah, it's like, please yeah. tell us that you know that you're not on top and that you're not winning right now. And maybe we know Jimmy's self-aware enough to realize that. But that notion of he still thinks of this as a game that he's winning and that there's a certain side of him that sees himself as 
well, yeah, I'm the last man standing, which means you're the last person the law can punish, which is not a great place to be. But also right. he says like Mike's in the ground, Fring's in the ground. Like, you know, when he's, when he's goading Kim into turning herself in, if that's what she really thinks he should do. It's like, you do feel like he's got this boastful notion. Maybe it only comes out when he's trying to justify himself to somebody that, that somehow his being alive is a sign that he's, he's alive to weasel out another day, which to him is is the ethos of the whole thing, you know? Like him, really, he's about to call the disappear. He's about to call Robert Forster again before he knocks his diamonds down into the trash, which is one of the, like, to me, as far as like metaphorical imagery, the, the notion that you had a thing full of diamonds and now you're digging through disgusting trash to get them back. It's like no quicker turnaround of a character can be imagined. And then that that's how they catch him, you know, covered with slime, trying to dig for his jewels in the garbage. Um, it's like, what a potent image of this guy. And you're just thankful when you look at the clock. Oh, there's a lot of episode left. This isn't how he goes out. This isn't how we end his story. But the, man, I don't know about you. They had me believing for a long time in that episode. This may be turning really grim. This must. This might be about how this guy never finds his soul, you know. And instead, they yeah. went. They went yeah. in the other direction. So I think that was very kind of them to, to somehow make it optimistic, even though he ends up behind bars. What did he? What? What had he talked? He had talked the prosecutors down to something insane. It was seven years. Seven years. But it still could have been, you know, multiple life sentences, and he had it down to seven years, right? Yeah, which, and then, and then with good behavior and everything else, you, you know, you, you never know. Um, he doesn't necessarily have to have the best deal possible. He needs to go to bed knowing he could have got it. <laughs> he knows he got him down to seven years before he got him up to 86, you know? <laughs> right. The legacy of Breaking Bad was always that it was kind of a perfect show, you know, that it never lost the plot. Mm -hmm. I think this show mm -hmm. just kind of added to that and upped the ante even a little bit by saying, oh, we actually did a prequel that's a sequel that makes Breaking Bad richer somehow. Like now, if you watch that story, Mike, Gus, Saul, they're all going to be <clears throat> richer characters than they were before. Yeah. And, and it yeah. fits. Like they, they didn't do anything that ruined the storytelling of Breaking Bad either, really. They didn't really, you know what I mean? Nothing in this show added a detail that that in my mind hurt the story no 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 not at all and and yeah it's it's really you know it's 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 great i always as a as a as a part-time filmmaker i always say that you know after you make a movie or two you start to realize that any completed movie is is a miracle it's amazing that a movie ever gets finished that a movie ever becomes you know comes out good uh is is, is a whole other is a whole other thing and um, the fact that we got Breaking Bad, which was an amazing, you know, show, um, and then followed up with a prequel, slight sequel show that is in some ways, you know, better, um, dare I say, is a miracle. You know, obviously this is a heavy subject and I'm so glad you did your homework because it meant that I wasn't the only person with a weird, like, page of scribbled notes here to deal with. But, <laughs> but I'm really glad that we did this. And I'm glad, honestly, this makes it so much more possible for me to say after all this time, I'm stepping back. I've sort of said everything I have to say. And now that you've got to to, to, to kind of get in your, your your final you know thoughts and and stuff on the show, now you can get out of the game finally. <laughs>
No chance. They don't let you out of the podcast game. <laughs> anyway. This guy. Any good? When I knew him, he was. I've thanked you before, but I'm so glad you made even more time than I thought we would need for this, but I'm glad we did it. Uh, apparently, this is a very, uh, uh, apparently, this is a show that leads to a lot of tangents, and I'm glad that we followed them all today. Yeah, and thanks so much for having me. It's been a lot of fun. And, um, and if nothing else, you know, podcast aside, it's always nice to, uh, to catch up and, and, and talk face to face on the Zoom call, you know? Yes, this is the Zoom to Zoom, as we do nowadays. Um, uh, where can people find you and the two kittens that you're going to end up keeping online? <laughs> <laughs> so, uh, so on Twitter, I am not even chance. Uh, there's a long story behind that handle, but I won't bore anybody with it right now. Um, the, the couple of things that I'm working on that, that I've, uh, that I've been, uh, having fun with lately. Um, I've been going back to the comic books of my youth and, um, and writing, uh, I've, I've got a, a, a subset called Marvel Time Warp where I go back and write about the comics that came out in 1978. My goal Talking about being a completist, my goal is to write about at least a little bit about everything that Marvel published uh, in 1978. And it's an interesting time because they were publishing Star Wars back then. They were publishing a licensed Godzilla book that's a lot of fun. Um, so I'm learning a lot about the history of the Bronze Age books that I grew up on that I didn't dig into thoroughly because I was seven years old, you know. By the way, amazing. I love that project. I love that period of comics, too. Oh, I'm, I'm, I didn't know if you were reading, but I'm, I'm, I'm glad you are. And the other thing is, is um, I'm running uh, subspace.tv, which is kind of like TV guide for science fiction movies that are streaming from the free site. So um, it's, uh, I really, I started that one. Um, I was kind of annoyed that we have Shudder, which is actually there's Shudder and there's like Screenbox, which are a couple of like really good streaming services for horror movies. And I'm like, well, why don't we have a, a, a streaming service for like, you know, science fiction movies? And then I realized, well, you know, I could kind of assemble my own just from all the stuff available on like on like uh, Tubi and Pluto and all these other free channels. You yeah. know? So it ended up being kind of a kind of a, a, a more of a TV guide approach to it. But um, but yeah, and that's just something that I, I update basically at the start of the month. You know, new stuff gets added to the services and new stuff drops off. So I try to keep that up to date. So it's kind of a database. But if anybody's looking for something to watch, you know, I think it's a good guide for that. And it's all free. So um, and big shout out to um, to our public libraries who keep uh, Hoopla and uh, Canopy going. Uh, everybody should get a library card. Yes. And that's called Subspace. And how do people find it? So it's. It's subspace.tv, like yeah. HTTP. Just just go to the okay. web and subspace.tv. And, and that one is a subspace, like at subspace TV is the Twitter handle for that one if anybody wants to follow it on Twitter. So we, do, we post some updates there. So how many movies do you watch in a week, do you think? Oh, my gosh. Um, not nearly. You know, talking about the pandemic, um, you know, I've really gotten into a weird headspace where I don't watch a lot of... I probably watch um, the same movies over and over, like, you know, 10 movies. But as far as really putting on a new movie and, and, and committing to it for two hours, um, I just don't do that nearly as much as I should. Um, recently, we watched that new Predator movie that's on Hulu, the one that's set in the, like, um, kind of pre, you know, America. Yeah. Uh, I guess it's set in the... 1500s, 1600s? It might be the 17, but yeah, it definitely is like a cool... No, 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 you're right, you're right. It's because there's some, there are some, there are some European settlers that yes. show up. Spoiler, you know. And, and they're total, um, they're total assholes, which is great. The story just uses them as cannon fodder. But what a great thing as a, as yeah. a horror fan, 
we've always talked about they should just do a blank movie in the blank. Like taking Predator and putting him in a different era mm -hmm. of history is a great, it's like it really enlivens the movie. Um, I, the other one I always have thought of is like Friday the 13th, Friday the 13th in the snow has not been done. And it just feels like all that blood on the snow. Come on, you're missing an opportunity. I know it's a summer camp mythos, but it could be like people are there to to, to repair some buildings during the winter break, or maybe it's a, a ski resort or something. I, there's different ways to do it. But those horror sequels that are like blank in space or blank, except it's medieval times. I love that method of sequel. And Prey, the movie you're talking about, is a really fun movie in that you could start watching it before it really reveals itself to you as a Predator movie. Um, and I don't know, it's just a cool genre thing to do. That So yeah, I thought that was an unusually successful movie for the type of, you know, I'm not that excited necessarily about the next Predator movie, but this was a great way into making it feel fresh. <clears throat> Yeah, it's, it, it starts off like a uh, it starts off like a, a coming of age story for this young woman, mm -hmm. and then it turns into like a full on like gruesome you know predator movie. Mm -hmm. um, it's 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 a lot of fun. Um, um, but um, but yeah, get back to your point though. I don't watch nearly as many new movies as I should, so maybe I'll uh, maybe I'll get in a better headspace at some point and start enjoying uh, enjoying new stuff instead of watching. I swear, this week alone, I've watched Star Trek: The Motion Picture like three times. <laughs> <laughs> Well, you know, that's why you were the perfect guest for this show is because you finally brought some Star Trek references into a show. <laughs> it's just what yeah, you needed. Instead of Star Wars references, we finally got to Star Trek. You know, hopefully we'll do this again. Maybe it would be fun uh, to talk about your your career, uh, some of the movies you've made, because I always find that endlessly fascinating. What you were saying before about finishing a movie is a miracle. I've always tipped my hat to your ability to get in there and like, you know, figure out what are the parameters of a doable project and push it through. It was great to get your insight. Like I said, it was great catching up. And um, and yeah, anytime that you want to, uh, uh, whatever the subject of the podcast, I'm sure that I can come up with uh, with, with some opinions on, on the topic. So just let me know anytime and, and we'll get together. Well, as uh, Kim said to Jimmy uh, in their phone call uh, when she was working at the sprinkler place, I'm glad you're alive. <laughs> <laughs> the same, the same. I got some troubles, but they won't last. I'm gonna lay right down here in the grass. And pretty soon all my troubles will pass. Cause I'm in sh 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 Never had a dog that liked me some Never had a friend who wanted one So I just lay back and laugh at the sun Cause I'm in sh 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 Yesterday it rained in Tennessee I heard it also rained in Tallahassee But not a drop fell on little old me Cause I was in shoo 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 shoo